Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Desire your humble anime slave, Regan Strongblood, and I'm feeling fine. I'm drinking wine, maxing and relaxing with episode 39. This week, we're trying something brand new for you. It's like the K1 of Q&As, ladies and gentlemen. This week, we have 12 questions, series one, the championship edition. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what I have done is I have searched the world for the mightiest fighters in the anime podcast world. These are the guys that I listened to before I started my podcast, and I would be a liar if I didn't say that the likes of Anime World Order and Anime Pacific didn't have a great influence on me going into the podcast world. It was exciting when I first heard Anime World Order because finally I thought I found an anime podcast that I'm interested in, talking about the stuff that I like, taking anime seriously. You know, and um, of course, Anime Pacific, no other podcast has helped me out as much. Dane in particular, he's always there for me. He's always doing uh, reviews. He helped me get my podcast um, up and going. So I'm eternally grateful to Anime World Order and um, Anime Pacific. And it's just a real honor to have Dane and the, uh, the likes on the show tonight. I'm not going to introduce because they're going to introduce themselves, all the fighters from around the world. We have five fighters, ladies and gentlemen, and I also will be taking part in the 12 Questions Series 1 edition. Um, I'll try to keep my answers short and sweet because this show is really about hearing the guys that influenced me, the podcast that influenced me, the guys that I really love to listen to, and I just thought it would be really interesting to get the different answers. Now, for those of you who are returning listeners, I know I said uh, last episode the Odin episode that this episode would be an all OVA episode review but um, I put that on hold that'll be episode 40 so for those of you please don't be disappointed because um, this should be a really special and fun episode so um, the way it works is I've asked these five fighters from around the world 11 of the same questions Um, basically I'm going to ask the question and then I'm going to have the five fighters answer all in a row I'll also answer And um, basically the thing that's interesting and fun about this show is to hear these gentlemen um, who I hold on a high pedestal, um, I respect their opinion, to hear the different opinions, um, different opinions of people who care about anime. And it's just kind of neat, especially with uh, the likes that I have. I think it'll be a really interesting show. Also, I've asked a solo question for the 12th question. a unique question specifically designed for um, the certain individuals who ask the question. Um, so what I'm saying is um, the six of us will be answering all one solo question, a unique question for just the one person. So it should be a lot of fun. Um, the fight is really the fight within uh, the podcaster's mind. The questions are a battle of wit. The winner, of course, are you, the listeners of Anime 82. And this is just basically a glorified Q&A, but hell, it's going to be fun. Now, if you'd like to contact me, you can email me at reganstrongblood, that's R-E-G-A-N-S-T-R-O-N-G-B-L-O-D at gmail.com, that's small case, mind you. I get a lot of emails, and it's great to see all the new listeners, and if you hear my cat meowing, I apologize, I don't know if it's picking up on the um, microphone, but I apologize if it is, but uh, email me if you want to talk anime, if you're looking for a certain anime, I may have it, I have tons of obscure, hard-to-find anime that's not online. I'm slowly trying to put a lot of it online, so uh, definitely get in hold of me. I always, um, I always reply um, usually through email, 
So um, thank you to the returning listeners. I see you out there, and there's been growth and growth, so thank you very much. And to the new listeners, this is a special show, and generally just do reviews, but uh, it's always lovely to have guests, especially when you do a solo show. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, with no further ado, let's get on with the beginning, round one. Oh, before we start, I also want to say, you may notice this is series one. I plan to have a series two. What I'd really like to do for series two, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, ladies and gentlemen, but what I'd really like to do is have an all-female uh, cast for series two. Now, generally, I'd, I wouldn't like to say all-female cast and split up uh, the lovely ladies of the podcast world with the gentlemen. Um, I wouldn't want to do this because I wouldn't want to come off as chauvinistic because... Um, there's no doubt that uh, women are beautiful, and uh, definitely I I value women equal to men. I think that women are just as capable as men, and women are beautiful. Men are ugly, of course. But um, unfortunately, when it comes to uh, anime podcasting, it's a very limited few who are female. So those who are – it's not necessarily that, that female um, podcasters are inferior, but because there's a smaller number in general – Obviously, the quality of decent female podcasts would be smaller just because the quantity of female podcasters is smaller. I would love to get Clarissa from the Anime World Order on Series 2. I'd love to get Aaron from the Ninja Consultants, and I'd love to get the lovely Vega um, on Series 2. I'm going to try to get those ladies, and uh, who knows? Maybe we'll get some of the wee boobies as well. We'll see. But, um, yeah, that's what I'm looking for Series 2. I'd also like to get Alex from Anime Pacific on Series 2, who um, is world-renowned chauvinist. I'd love to get him on with a bunch of uh, lovely ladies. And of course, I'm joking, Alex. I I think you're very interesting, and I actually value your opinions on uh, sci-fi. I kind of took some of your advice. But uh, yeah, Series 2, I want to get the three lovely ladies and Alex. That's, that's my goal. We'll see if I can get them. So um, with no further ado, uh, it's time for introductions. And in order to keep things in tournament style. We'll do this very organized. Um, I will introduce myself. I am, of course, Regan Strongblood. I run this podcast, Anime 82, of course, and I also am a member of Box Fan Subs. We're continuously releasing kind of older stuff, generally stuff from the 80s and harder to find OVAs of the sorts. I'm currently, I'm working on the Dr. Slump movie 1 and 2. Also, Look out for um, California Crisis OVA, which will be released very shortly, and uh, a lot of great stuff. Just go to Backup ET. We got a lot of obscure stuff, and uh, yes, Regan Strongblood, the man who carries the anime love. Now, the introduction of the five fighters. Hey, this is Gerald with Anime World Order. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, some of the basics, I guess. Uh, I'm one-third of the Anime World Order podcast. You can check us out at www.animeworldorder.com or email us at animeworldorder at gmail.com and uh, let's see, uh, tell us how you like the new show with uh, trying to get episodes out in a little bit more timely manner. But uh, anyway, on with the questions. By way of introduction, my name is Jeff. Rich Lather to Tarek of the Lather's Blather podcast, the rarely updated but still existing podcast, Lather's Blather, all one word, lathersblather.blogspot, 
Com. Or if you do a search on iTunes, you'll find it that way. Or simply do a Google search for Lather's Blather, and you'll find it. And I'm really honored to be a part of this. This is, I think, one of the first times that I've really had a chance to actually sit down, think about how long I've been in this, and what brought me around to it. So I think I'm going to have a lot of fun with this. Hi there, folks. My name is Philip. I sometimes go by the internet handle of Eper, and I run the Eper's Choice podcast, which is Ireland's only anime and manga review podcast, as far as I'm aware. You can find me at eperschoice.com. That's www.eee3esperschoice.com. Greetings, Anime82 listeners. I am... Dane, who has uh, frequently appeared on the Anime 82 show. I also host the uh, anime podcast, well, supposed anime podcast, Anime Pacific, which is at animepacific.blogspot.com. We've been around for, well, three years plus now, I think. Who's counting? I share Regan's love of the old school, and I have the distinction of being the only unaccented podcaster. Yes, you heard me. Anyway, on with the very exciting questions. My name is Daryl Surratt. I have an anime podcast, the Anime World Order podcast at www.animeworldorder.com. And I also do freelance writing, most typically for Otaku USA Magazine at www.otakuusamagazine.com. In some ways, I'm probably indirectly to blame for this podcast, Anime 82, existing. As a result of reviewing Odin, Photon, Space Sailor, Starlight on my podcast, I noticed Mr. Regan Strongblood, once upon a time, had a video series on YouTube where he reviewed anime, one of which was Odin, and he mentioned me by name. These YouTube videos no longer exist, since something awful, a site I post on, independently of me, found out about these videos and made fun of them, so now he took them down. But this podcast lives on. And so, despite the fact that I have the flu and can't really talk all that well, I figured I may as well record my answers to these 12 questions that Regan has sent me. I've actually answered some of these questions in the past on my own podcast, but let's get it all together in one place. So, we'll ask the questions in order. First, the question will be asked, and then the gentleman will answer them, and then we'll move on to the next question. We'll keep it in an order that I've chosen for no particular reason, and we'll put myself first, because ladies first, of course, we'll save the best for last. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are. It's time to begin the tournament. How did you get into anime? Well, as a kid... I watched a lot of anime, but I I wouldn't say I was a super fan. Uh, I was originally a super uh, daikaiju fan. Now, that means, like, giant monster. Um, I enjoyed these on a serious level. I really appreciated the giant rubber monsters. I just thought it was so interesting. Of course, Godzilla, Gamera, um, with the rebirth of the Godzilla series in the 90s, and the new... Gamera movies it just really sparked my interest back um, and basically I just I sucked up all Daikaiju I could um, all the Japanese stuff all the American stuff all the Korean stuff and eventually I gotta tell you I ran out of Kaiju stuff I could have went into like the Ultraman and sort of the mass hero sort of thing but it wasn't really my cup of tea I was more into the monsters 
I have every single Godzilla movie ever made. I have every single Gamera. I ordered them specially from the United States, like these bootlegs of the uncut widescreen subtitle Gamera. There's nothing left. I love Godzilla and I love Gamera, but I just, I ran out of stuff. And then one day I was just, I popped in the original Devman OVA and I don't know, I just started really getting into it. And I thought, hey, my obsessed mind can move on from Daikaiju to anime. And I just somehow projected my crazy mind and my love for Kaiju. I projected it onto anime and I, my insane mind just stuck with that. And, um, I know the defining moment where I was blessed with the anime love. I was enlightened by anime. I was watching Galaxy Express 3.9, the first movie, and um, it was so beautiful. I was so touched and interested all at the same time that it hit me like, bonk. It was like when Siddhartha Gautama became the Buddha. He just became enlightened like that. Boom. I was watching Galaxy Express 3.9, and I just fell in love. I just... Tears actually ra rolled down my eyes. The anime was so beautiful. The story, the picture. I just, I started to realize that animation one day would be regarded like classical music. One day, um, it would be regarded as a beautiful art form. Um, it would be respected like those directors um, of orchestras and the wonderful music, how it's arranged, how it's displayed, the feelings you get. I think animation one day will be respected on that level. And um, the orchestra of anime, it hit me on so many levels. Galaxy Express 3.9 changed my life. And that's when I became an anime super fan. That's when Daikaiju, I still like it, but really I got to tell you, I go back to Daikaiju and it just, there's no comparison. Anime, I love on so many levels. It's something that you can just enjoy on so many levels if you love music if you love color if you love art if you love story you love fantasy you love imagination you love reality anime can just hit you on so many multiple multiple dimensions that i am hooked for life i love anime it's just taken over it's bigger than godzilla it's bigger than gamera though i'd like to see gamera versus godzilla godzilla better win that fight so yes i ran out of daikaiju i watched devilman ovas and then i watched the galaxy express 39 movie one and then i was hooked and that's how be i became a mad obsessed anime fan how did i get into anime um it's uh, not a terribly long story or anything but i actually was watching robotech on television in the 80s i'm pretty sure it was 1985 in uh, south africa where i was actually born uh, we actually had a, a good mix of like american television and uh, British television there, and so we got quite a lot of Japanese animation there, and uh, that was one of the shows that I really, really liked. It was just kind of different from anything else at the time, different from, you know, Paddington Bear and Scooby-Doo, because we got both of those. And then when I came to America, um, I uh, was still a fan of animation, and um, I was actually, at the time, reading comic books, and this was, you know, 80s as well, and uh, I would go into comic book stores, and in the very back of the, uh, usually behind, like, the comic book counters, uh, they would have uh, these videos that were usually very expensive, like $35, and uh, I would end up picking up a few of them, and my sister ended up picking up a copy of Akira, and this is the original 1989 video comics version, I remember watching that and just being blown away by it. 
and uh, also they would have these little pamphlets that they would give out and if you were part of like the comic book uh, if you bought comic books from you know particular vendors and such and they would have a small section there for anime as well and so that was you know way back in the days and i was actually living in the virgin islands at the time so you couldn't just go to a store there i mean i actually would go to comic book stores when i would visit america but otherwise i'd have to you know go to the post office and get a uh, a money order and you know send out for copies of gal force and project echo and and things like that and that's kind of where it started this now going back whew, 20 plus years now over 20 years almost Ugh, i've been doing this a long time I've been watching anime since I was four years old or so, but I have memories of watching Speed Racer early on Saturday mornings using a Matchbox card to emulate the jumps of the Mach 5 as I watched, and I also catch occasional episodes of Star Blazers and Battle of the Planets when I would visit my grandparents in Pennsylvania, and I was remember being enthralled by all the space combat and characters, and these were shows that definitely were never aired at home, and I knew that there was something different about those shows, but... You know, that they looked completely unlike anything that Hanna-Barbera was being was offering up on Saturday mornings or other companies like that. But what really started to kick things off wouldn't happen until 1984 when Voltron and Transor Z were syndicated on U.S. television. I was you know, 12 years old at the time, and these shows made an indelible mark on who I would become as an anime fan. And this was also around the time of Mighty Orbots on ABC's Saturday morning lineup, and well, for me, that was a real giant robot bonanza. Uh, but it wasn't until I bought two issues of the now-defunct Starlog magazine in 1986 that had a very large two-part overview of anime in general, including capsule descriptions of many shows, some of which I'd glimpsed before. Uh, and I was really amazed at all the things that I'd missed out on. Uh, how many things I actually recognized. It was here that I learned that the crazy source material for the cliffhanger Laserdisc arcade game was really Lupin III, and that Star Blazers was really a huge, long-running phenomenon in Japan called Space Battleship Yamato, or Space Cruiser Yamato, as the term was in vogue then. And maybe that Robotech was really three different shows, and so on and so forth. All through high school, I learned more about this thing called Japanimation, as it was largely known then, the word anime not really coming into vogue in my neck of woods at that point in time. I'd read magazines from the local comic book shop, you know, stuff like Animag, where I learned about Bubblegum Crisis and Dirty Pair, and read episode synopses of this amazing show that, to be fair, I still haven't seen, called Zeta Gundam. But what tipped me over the edge was a party for the local sci-fi and fantasy club held at a member's house. There was this guy there named Jeff Rowe. He is also the guy at the comic book shop who turned beyond anime and also later to original issues of New Type as they came out in Japan. He invited me and a few other people up to his part of the house. It must have been a duplex that he rented with someone else. And he showed me a clip tape that had been edited together featuring scenes from several different shows. Now, I saw the scene of the Omu busting from the forest Naushika flying just ahead of it. I saw Rick Hunter carrying Lin Minmay in the hand of his Veritech, only to have the arm shot away by his Entrati weapon and you know the tape cut away to a next scene, so we never saw what happened. It was a nice teaser. Um, but probably most of all, I saw the car chase from the beginning of Castle Cagliostro, one of the best directed car chases I think I've ever seen. And then he sent me home with some of his tapes to borrow. 
I can't remember what I watched in those first few days. It might have been Don Cougar, Requiem for Victims, or Maddox Zero One, or Be Forever Yamato. All in raw Japanese, mind you, but I was forever hooked, even to this day. So it's that party in 1989 or so, 1988 maybe, that really got me into anime. How did I get into anime? Well, I basically got into anime in the early 1990s by watching uh, a channel called Channel 4. They used to run this late-night programming block of just nothing but Manga UK's back catalogue. So things like Dangayo, uh, Vampire Hunter D, uh, Akira, Ghost in the Shell, Legend of the Four Dragons or the Five Dragons. I can never remember what the title of that thing is. I think I saw the X movie. I'm not certain. I cannot remember to the, for the life of me that I see it or not. Yeah, and that's how I kind of got into it. It was just literally just the programming block, and we used to just sit there every night, I think for something like four, five, six months, however long they ran the programming block for. I'm sure nobody watched it. That's probably why they pulled it in the end. But uh, Channel 4 had this reputation of being edgy and alternative, and you know, in the early 1990s, anime was, it's still, was still at that point a kind of a real niche on the edge genre, not the almost mainstream kind of click that it is now so yeah that was that's how i got into anime well i think i've mentioned this on the anime 82 show before actually and i I don't think i've mentioned this on my own show but well you could say i've kind of always been into anime though i didn't necessarily know it in the beginning Uh, growing up in australia i had the advantage of being able to see astro boy in its relatively uncut form the 1980s astro boy uh my own auntie and my my mother's sister, basically, uh, saw the 1960s Astro Boy and also loved that. So uh, you can say I was nurtured in a family that enjoyed Astro Boy uh, very much. So, yeah, of course, I, I loved Astro Boy, which I, as well as Star Blazers or Space Battleship Yamato, which, believe it or not, I have not seen since, I don't know, 1984. But uh, upon seeing the opener... I distinctly remember watching it as a kid. Regardless, back in the early 80s, they were just cartoons to me. There wasn't the distinction of them being anime in my mind yet. And I think it was really upon going to a video store, I had a beta, or beta, and I didn't have a VHS player, so I had to go to specific video stores that still had those tapes. And uh, I saw a cartoon called The Nine Lives of Fritz the Cat, which was the sequel to the original Fritz the Cat animated film. And uh, I was flabbergasted that cartoons could be made for adults. And this was in 1988, so I was eight years old. Yes, I am nearing what Daryl Surratt calls the otaku expiry date. I'll be 30 in May. Eek. But at eight years old, I just couldn't believe that a cartoon could be made for adults, and there was something in that that I just absolutely loved. And I was just... I was craving the chance to check out animation made for older people. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Fritz the Cat being R-rated, it was a difficult sell on my mother, although she did cave in and rent it out, and I was able to see three minutes before she realised it was probably a terrible idea. In hindsight, she probably should have just let me watch it, because uh, I probably wouldn't have got it anyway. Later on, uh, I did finally get to see The Missing Link, which I reviewed on the non-anime 
cartoon episode of Anime 82. You guys should check that out. And that was really my sort of first exposure with animation made for adults or for older people. And uh, I didn't look back. Now, what really started the very specific anime craze was when I saw Akira, which uh, came to Australian video stores in uh, the early 90s. And um, I knew, as soon as I saw the box, this is something I would absolutely love. And I was absolutely right. I absolutely adored Akira, uh, which resulted in me trying to find anime, any anime, which resulted in me discovering Robotech, or Macross, uh, which was available on video in Australia. And eventually, of course, I had to import uh, all the manga video releases from the UK for uh, about $50 a piece. But I have absolutely no regrets. Now, unlike most anime podcasters here, I never went to any anime club or even a con. Uh, because, well, growing up in Australia, uh, it's not a very nerd-centric place. I mean, the number one rated show is Better Homes and Gardens or something I would not be interested in at all. And any sort of nerdy sci-fi stuff like Star Trek or Babylon 5 is on at about a billion o'clock at night when everyone's asleep. So, um, yeah, and, you know, everyone likes sports and that sort of stuff, which I don't. So I was very much a loner in my fandom. Well, I was able to kind of assemble a ragtag group of uh, anime uh, appreciators, but none of them seemed to uh, get into it as much as I did. So here I am now living in Hong Kong, where anime is very much kind of a mainstream thing, and there's plenty of fans everywhere, and I can make uh, casual references to Hok Don or Ken, to uh, the guy that did acupuncture on me a few months ago, and he could get every single thing or reference I was talking about, which was very refreshing. For me, I was always a video gamer. As a kid, as a child of the 80s, that meant I had an Atari 5200, which was unusual. Most everyone had a 2600, or a ColecoVision, or an Intellivision. Then I got a Nintendo, like everybody had. Except for the one or two people who had a Sega Master System. In the early 90s, suddenly everyone started to get Super Nintendos, or Genesises. Back then, there was no internet, so if you wanted to read about video games, you had to subscribe to magazines. I was an avid subscriber to Nintendo Power magazine. The first place I incidentally ever heard about Golgo 13, which was, for the record, the first place most people in America ever heard the name Golgo 13. And then afterwards, I was a subscriber to Electronic Gaming Monthly, or EGM. This magazine had a section devoted entirely to games from Japan as most games being made were from, what with the manufacturers of these consoles being Japanese companies and all. This was where I first heard about names like Lupin III, Urusei Yatsura, Dragon Ball Z, Yu Yu Hakusho, and even lesser-known things like Tarchan and Go Go Ackman. The backs of these magazines often had advertisements for stores that would sell import games. Included with these Ads were pictures of these weird cartoons. Things from Dragon Ball Z. And one other one that caught my eye, which I later found out, would be called Bubblegum Crisis. Between that and perhaps some random TBS showings of things like Robot Carnival or Vampire Hunter D, most of which were too late at night for me to ever see in full, by the time we got a computer of our own... I knew what the word Japanimation was. And so once we finally got 
our very own home personal computer with our very own modem that could access the internet, the very first thing I ended up doing was looking up this Japanimation thing and finding out that it was mostly really referred to as anime. So yeah, that was basically how I got into it. And there wasn't really a show that I saw that I said, wow, this is great. What is this stuff? Nope. Video games. That was what got me. Question number two. What's your favorite genre of anime? Well, my favorite genre of anime is science fiction slash fantasy. There's no doubt. I mean, if I was to name my top 10 shows of all time, probably 90% of them are going to be um, in space. I just, I love it. I've always loved that sort of stuff. Even before anime, like I was the youngest in my family growing up. My brother always read heavy metal, you know, those magazines. I always loved those high fantasy, just the real realistic sci-fi. Yeah, I like that too. But mostly space fantasy, stuff like Star Wars, just crazy stuff, stuff like Mad Max. It just really got me hooked. And then when I saw stuff like the Dirty Pair, I was like, oh my God. So yes, definitely sci-fi slash fantasy fantasy anything in space and i love the mecha genre too but i'm gonna to have to say sci-fi my favorite genre of anime hmm. um well i guess like most anime fans out there i don't really limit myself to a particular genre but if i had to kind of you know narrow it down i would say i'm really big into sci-fi anime in general uh there's not a whole lot of it that's being made nowadays uh, or at least they're certainly less than they're used to be made. And uh, so those are kind of the shows that really attracted me, and especially uh, sci-fi shows that have got, you know, in involve a lot of space or involve a lot of uh, mechanical things. I'm, I'm a big fan of, like, you know, the Bubblegum Crisis series and Gal Force, especially Gal Force, and... Um, uh, Mospita and uh, shows that have got uh, mechs and, uh, you know, space battles and things like that. Um, kind of a dying genre. If you're lucky, you'll get, you know, two shows maybe a year that are sci-fi related that have those sort of elements, and I guess they're just very expensive to put together nowadays. But, um, and I guess outside of that, it would seem like this is, you know, the subsection of it, but I do like giant robot shows a whole lot. Um, there hasn't been, you know, a whole lot of those either. Again, kind of a dying genre. But yeah, and and it's kind of weird because I'm not that big a fan of uh, sci-fi in general. Like, I don't really read a whole lot of sci-fi books. I'm not a Trek fan, or I've never seen a single episode of Babylon 5. Um, things I, I, and that's not to say that I dislike those things, I just never really, a lot of those things just never played where I lived. Uh, it was a kind of a big deal when we finally got a channel in the Virgin Islands that, that, uh, I think it was a Chicago station that played, uh, The Next Generation. But, um, yeah, in general, I'm not that big a sci-fi, oh yeah, and, and I'm not even that big a fan of Doctor Who, which would seem like almost a requirement, especially now, um, yeah, uh, big into sci-fi mostly. As my fanboy origin story no doubt showed, I love mecha shows, both the more realistic ones like Vodoms and Padlabor, as well as the completely hyperbolic ones like Majinga Zeto and Voltron, of course. 
Now, to expand on that, I've always liked sci-fi movies and TV shows that feature a lot of technology. I'm probably one of the few people that got into space in 1999 before I got into Star Trek, and I still love the design of the Eagle, but that's a sidetrack. Mechanical designs for ships, weapons, and so on catch my eye oftentimes more than the stories themselves, so to have animated shows that can portray those things with the fluidity and complexity that live action at the time, and to an extent still today, couldn't match was a big selling point, ever since I saw my first rocket punch. Well, I'd probably say my favorite genre of anime would be probably cyberpunk I think things like Akira, Ghost in the Shell, Cyber City 0808, things like that kind of cemented that. But as the cyberpunk genre kind of, I won't say went away from anime, it kind of just got ironed out in favor of better things or other things, whichever way you view it. Um, I don't know. I think Mecha has taken on a new life for me, but specifically a kind of Mecha like Patlabor. Not Gundam. I am not crazy about Gundam. I think it's the length of something like Gundam that I, I can't get into. So I'd say probably originally Cyberpunk. Now I think it would probably be something like Mecha. If not Mecha, then uh, I don't know. I really don't have a genre of favorite anymore. I'm kind of I've integrated anime into my uh, viewing pleasure, like I do with most films. I don't have a f- favorite. Like I will only watch this particular genre kind of thing. Um, in film, and that's it. So I watch all kinds of films, and in the same way, I watch all kinds of anime. This is a difficult question because my favorite genres kind of change as I get older. I think the slightly younger version of me would have definitely said the uh, mecha, sci-fi kind of mecha stuff, but uh, these days I think I I kind of enjoy the uh, more intellectual sci-fi and fantasy Anything really atmospheric, I think. And I think one of the reasons that uh, Darker Than Black is one of the newer shows that resonated with me is because, having lived in Japan a little while, I can say that they got the environment down absolutely perfectly. And, uh, you know, it just it made me remember living there. And I think I pay a lot more attention to stuff like background art and atmosphere. And I think um, more uh, fictional-leaning genres... for lack of a better description, uh, tend to uh, focus on the atmospherics a bit more. I have to admit I have a soft spot for um, police procedural anime, which uh, is... uh, They don't deliver that in spades, but I think Pat Labor would be a good mix. You know, that mixes the old with the new in terms of uh, what I really love. It mixes the mecha, but it's sort of it's got the more intellectual police procedural drama in there and a bit of comedy, character orientated. So I think that sort of stuff really appeals to me. I, I do love Pat Labor. And I think uh, anything that uh, really appeals to my manly side, you know, uh, Fist of the North Star and Sultan uh, Noken, Fist of the Blue Sky, Sultan um, Koro, the as of this recording, unfinished uh, seinen historical, semi-historical anime based off the manga, which I freaking loved because it was uh, historic, which I, I'm, I'm also a sucker for historical stuff. Historic, historical fiction, we could say, and very manly. It was directed by Toyo Ashida, who directed the Vampire Hunter DOVA, uh, the original one, and of course the Fist of the North Star film. Damn it, I love that series. Damn it, I want them to finish subbing it. 
I know a lot of people like to be very non-committal and say, oh, I'll watch any genre, but I'll level with you. My favorite genre of anime is action, with drama being either tied for first or a close second. It's just uh, easier and cheaper to animate certain spectacular things than it would be otherwise to film in live action. Nowadays, pretty much every Hollywood movie is almost entirely computer graphics. I consider this animation myself. I know a lot of people don't because they like to delude themselves, but that's what it is. Question number three. What was the first anime you ever saw? The first anime I ever saw, I was very, very young. Um, there was a lot of shows that were uh, dubbed specifically in Canada, and I don't think that the Americans got it. They may in certain regions got some of these shows, but there was a lot of shows that were just dubbed just in Canada, especially in the early 80s. Um, of course, Astro Boy, the Americans had a dub that was far, 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 far inferior to the Canadian. The Canadian dub is just way superior. It's just a disappointment I can't find the Canadian dub on DVD. Um, the American version just is lackluster. They don't have any feeling. You listen to the Canadian dub of Astro Boy, the 1980s one, it's just it's phenomenal. But unfortunately, the Australians, I don't know, there are brothers of the Commonwealth, but they got the American version. It just makes sense. There's no queen in America. What's going on? There's no Union Jack. Australia, what are you doing watching the American version? You should be watching the Canadian version. Where's your honor? Is your blood not blue? Anyways, I digress. Of course, I'm just joking. But uh, yeah, anyways, the first anime I ever watched, I was five years old. And yes, I know what you're thinking. I probably didn't know it was anime, but this isn't true because I was the baby of the family. So of course, I had people telling me all about these different shows, about Star Wars, about this. And um this show, they let me know it was anime and that it was from Japan right away. So I knew even when I was five years old, this was from Japan because they told me. Maybe it didn't process, but my little retarded brain knew. The first anime I ever saw was a show that, it was popular in Canada. I think anyone growing up around the age I am, um, you know, from your late 20s to early 30s would know what I'm talking about. This show was Yama Nizumi Roki or, oh, Yama Nizumi Roki Chaku or Rocky Chuck, the mountain rat. Better known in Canada is... Tales of the Green Forest. It's the first anime I ever saw. I'm actually going to put a link up so those of you who haven't seen this, you can watch 20 of the episodes streaming. Also, if you just type in Green Forest slash Torrent or whatever, there's about 20 episodes online you can find. There's DVD rips. Um, it's a great little show. And um, basically, Tales of the Green Forest or Rocky Chuck the Mountain Rat are Mountain Rat? are based on the stories of Thornton W. Burgess, his stories in the forest of different animals. And um, it was a fun show. So that was the first anime I ever saw. Also, I watched um, that Thunderbirds anime. Is it called Th Thunderbirds 2010? I know that was an, another Canadian dub. I don't know if they got that in America. And I also watched the Astro Boy, the Canadian dub. Um, of course, in the 1980s, there was laws in Canada where you couldn't have uh, too many toy commercials playing when cartoons are on so um, they had to add an extra 10 minutes to the show which the Americans didn't have those laws and the Japanese didn't have those shows but so we had a little um, extra add-on to all the different Astro Boy shows we, the computer Geronimo um, Astro Boy would report back to the computer Geronimo at the end of the show and the computer would get one fact he would re relay the episode and he'd get one fact incorrect and then you and your friends would try to um, remember 
uh, which which was wrong, which was the wrong um, description by the computer computer Geronimo. And it was sort of like a little game you play at the end of the show. And that was only for the Canadian version because, like I said, there, you couldn't have so many commercials in it due to Canadian laws. So I think they just kind of edited it and dubbed it in just the Canadian companies did. But that was just sort of a little special thing that just us Canadian Astro Boy fans got. I thought that was fun. Of course, our French brothers and uh, the English brothers in Canada, we got that. So, yeah, Astro Boy... Thunderbirds 2010, and um, yeah, Rocky Chuck the Mountain Rat, first one I ever watched. Sort of a weird show to have your first as your first anime, but there you have it. Hmm, the first anime that I ever watched. Well, actually, I don't know what the name of that was. I distinctly remember watching a show, I believe it was a video, it was probably on Betamax, and this is going back, ooh, 84. 584 or so somewhere around there and this was in South Africa and there was a giant robot in it there was a mad scientist and these guys in it played a lot of soccer and all I remember was uh, these these uh, the main character was playing soccer with kind of his rival and he slipped and fell into the mud, and it was raining, and it was rather unpleasant, and I have no idea what this show was. Uh, I believe it was suggested that it might have been Rydeen, but I haven't actually gotten a chance to watch the the older Rydeen, but um, I guess the first anime that I watched that I knew the name of was probably Robotech. But I guess if we're going, you know, by a more strict definition of it in terms of, you know, if I bought videos and such, uh, I guess one of the earliest ones that I ever saw that was yeah, subtitled, and well, actually, I don't, I don't remember if it was subtitled, it might have been, but it was in Japanese, was actually Harmageddon. Um, quite a weird way to get introduced to it. But, yeah, I believe that's those are some of the earliest. Some other early, early ones were like Project Echo and uh, Gal Force, and I believe I rented Bubblegum Crisis. Uh, but, uh, yep, I think maybe Rydeen. Maybe. Maybe someone can help me out and figure out what that was. Speed Racer, definitely. It must have been shown at like 6 in the morning on Saturdays when I was very, very young, and it was followed by Ultraman. I didn't like that because the opening sequence with its creepy monsters and imagery, the way the Ultraman logo just sort of oozed onto the screen, just something I didn't like. It didn't scare me. I just got uneasy watching it. Had I watched it then, I might have been a different person, perhaps becoming more of a Godzilla fan and tokusatsu fan instead of an anime fan with tokusatsu leanings. Okay, this is the second time I'm doing this question because for some reason in post-production I... Uh somehow deleted the answer to this question, so sorry about the uh, trouble, Regan. Anyway, uh, the first anime I ever saw that I consciously knew was anime. Uh, well, I suppose I, at that time I knew Astro Boy was from Japan, but uh, anyway, was Akira. Akira was the first real quote-unquote anime that I saw uh, in the early 90s, and uh, that certainly made an epic impact on me. And subsequently I discovered uh, Super Dimensional Fortress Macross, although of course it was Robotech. And then I saved up my meager pocket money and bought Dominion Tank Police Volume 1, the OVA, for 45 
Australian dollars. The video was imported from the UK. Just a little side note for the first... Hmm, well, I suppose until the DVD era, most anime fans uh, in Australia and the UK had absolutely zero options for a subtitled version. It was all by uh, Manga Video's now famous dubs. Which I have to admit, I think dubs back then were a lot better than they appear to be now. Despite the uh, so-called 15-ing and, and seemingly infinite barrage of swear words, a lot of the dub actors were actually quite skilled theatrical actors in their own right uh, in the UK. Yes, I think most of these great dubs I'm talking about were actually recorded in the UK, and uh, a lot of them were uh, formally doing dub work for Hong Kong action films. But I can say that as Akira was the first real sort of anime that I saw, I had to prepare myself for kind of a letdown for every subsequent title I saw for quite a long time because I was expecting them to have groundbreaking animation and uh, storylines, which, you know, I think I was setting the bar a little bit too high. It took a subsequent rewatching until I realized that I actually loved Dominion Tank Police. I think the first time I bought it, I was instantly disappointed that it was not uh, a gritty, immaculately animated sci-fi epic. Well, certainly, I know some people could say they uh, grew up watching Voltron. I know I did. But I didn't know that was an anime at the time. So really, the first anime I ever saw that I knew for sure was anime in full was probably the English dub of Riding Bean, followed pretty much immediately, because it was on the same copied VHS tape, Volume 1 of Area 88, subtitled in English. That was my introduction to anime, Area 88, Riding Bean. Personally, I usually say Area 88 because that was the first one I ever saw in Japanese with English subtitles. You ask anyone I know, not really very many people like Area 88. At least they don't hold it up as much as I do. But hey, that's nostalgia, right? Question number four. Who's your favorite anime director? Okay, this is an extremely hard question because there's so many directors that I adore and like I said a lot of these questions are just kind of unfair because really how can you just you know put it down to one person but uh, two guys in general who just keep popping up my mind the first guy who I considered picking but I didn't was Ryosuke Takahashi of course um, he's famous for Votums the Votums TV series the original Votums OVA, and uh, Votums was just a huge show for me. It's my favorite mecha show of all times. Um, and I contemplated picking him, but in the end, you know who I had to go with? I had to go with Yoshiyuki Tomino. Now, original Gundam and Zeta Gundam alone, those are huge shows, especially Zeta Gundam. I love it. But then you bring in Fifam, you bring in Ideon, you bring in Exabungle. And ladies and gentlemen, I gotta really admit, he had me at Heavy Metal L Game because, oh man, Heavy Metal L Game is slowly becoming one of my favorite mecha shows of all time. It's up there with Votums. Be careful, Votums. You may lose. Heavy Metal L Game is just coming in so strong. A lot of people criticize Tomino. They criticize him for coming in strong and ending weak. But I gotta tell you, one thing about the shows that Tomino directs, the characters are always very interesting. The stories are always very interesting. 
I love him as a director. My favorite, Tomino. Some people are going to argue. They're going to say, are you crazy? Let's kill them all. I'm like, baby, let him kill them all because I love him. Yeah, I got to go with him. And before all, of you, before all of you start saying, hey, what are you saying, Voltus? He did work. He did work on Vifam and Voltus. I just brought those up because just examples of two shows that I really, really love. And um, he worked on those. And, of course, Ideon. Oh, my God, Ideon. I love you, Ideon. But also, I got to give honorable mentions to, uh, how do I say this guy's name? Nobutaka Nishizawa. Totally need to give him honorable mentions. Galaxy Express 3 and I, what can I say? But, uh, yeah, if anything, if you get anything out of this, you like Tamino, you got to watch Gundam if you haven't seen it. And a lot of you who have seen Gundam, I highly recommend you go check out Heavy Metal All Game. It's, it is very, very good. So, yeah. Man, that's a tough question, but, yeah. I have to go with Tamino. I really have to. Okay. Favorite anime director. Um, that would probably be um, Katsuhito Akiyama. Um, still around today. He's actually been working since, I believe, the late 70s. Uh, got his start on um, uh, the mischievous Chi and uh, worked, I believe, a lot for Artmic. Uh, was one of the episode directors of uh, Mospita. And I believe he got his big break when he got to direct uh, Galforce and the first episode, a little bit later, he directed the first episode, first three episodes, I believe, of the Bubblegum Crisis series. And uh, more recently, he's done things like um, he did uh, Black Heaven, and uh, that was, I guess, not terribly recent now. That's almost ten years old, but he did um, other shows. He did the sequel to Armitage, and he's done... Um, Battle Athlete's Victory, and uh, I really like him a lot because, um, I, get, I mean, I admit straight up that not all of his work is great. Some of it is kind of average. Some of it's forgettable. I guess the Armitage Polymatrix is kind of, or it was a Deal Matrix, I believe, was, you know, not terribly memorable. I liked it a lot, though. Well, I should say I liked it, not a lot. But um, what I like is that he tends to take a, uh, a terrible concept and uh, case in point, Magical Project S, that was one of the shows that he directed. This was, you know, purely a show that was trying to get, you know, extend the Tenchi license in any way that it could. And they put out some videos of that that were not directed by him that were awful, terrible. And then they gave him, you know, this project and said, hey, 26 episodes, make this show. And it ended up being one of the most enjoyable shows that I've ever seen. Another one, uh, Battle Athletes Victory. Um, they made six episodes for that OAV series, and they were kind of mediocre to forgettable, and so they gave him another TV series based on this. And, you know, it's about girls in space, in, like, the Space Olympics and such. And, again, doesn't seem like it would be uh, anything special, but it ended up being a really, really good show. Um... He's been doing some other shows more recently. He did a show called DT Atron that I've not had a chance to see. He did another show called Monkey Turn, which looked like Initial D with, uh, with like, jet skis or something, or, like, water boats. But um, I should probably keep up with some of the newer things he's done. He was doing some sports shows, I believe. Uh, Inazuma Eleven, which I have not seen and uh, I guess some other things more recently, but um, yeah, I, I just really like 
when a guy is given just seemingly an insurmountable task and actually can create something pretty good out of it. Now, here's a tough one. It's difficult to narrow it down to just one guy. I've enjoyed what Shinichiro Watanabe did with Cowboy Bebop and Excel Saga, and I will always be grateful for Osamu Dezaki's work on Mighty Orbots and the Golgo 13 movie, the one with the infamous helicopters. Yasuhiro Imagawa's work on Giant Robo stands for itself, and I am fond of Mamoru Oshii's Padlaver work, if nothing else. But if I had to draw the line and say there's one guy whose work stands out to me as the kind of guy I'd like to emulate through my own work if given the chance, it'd have to be Hayao Miyazaki. No one else has the ability to fully craft worlds in the way that he does, film after film, in my opinion. And I would not think twice about living in the idealized European settings of Kiki's Delivery Service and Howl's Moving Castle. Gorgeous and breathtaking. And the fact that he is constantly paired with Joe Hisaishi for the music, oh, that makes it even better. Ooh, it's a dead heat again between somebody like Yoshiaki Kawajiri or mm, Rintaro. Uh, Rintaro is one of these outside bets. He did something. He did things like uh, Captain Harlock. He did the Metropolis movie. He did the X movie, as far as I know. I cannot remember if he did the X movie or the X TV series. I'm, I'm not certain which. But like, I love Rintaro, but I love Yoshiaki Kawajiri. He just he introduced me to the concept that you just didn't have to do fluffy uh, bunnies and all this kind of kitty fair kind of stuff for anime. He did things like Cyber City, uh, Demon City Shinjuku. He did Ninja Scroll. Ninja Scroll is one of my favorite animes of all time. It's just one of those. Th- th- he's one of those directors who just. He can do something, and he can do it well, and you can never say you were kind of unfulfilled out of a Yoshiaki Kawajiri. Now, I'm certain there are people out there who will probably say, well, I watched this and this title, and I wasn't entirely impressed by it. And you know, you're, you're entitled to your opinion, but that's my opinion anyway. This could probably be uh, nostalgia talking, because I know a lot of his work, or almost all of his work, does not contain Shakespearean levels of depth, but I... I'd probably have to go with Yoshiaki Kawajiri. I was going to go for Osamu Dezaki, but yeah, I think I'll go with Kawajiri. Ninja Scroll was one of those things that actually achieved uh, a certain degree of mainstream success. Although, I have to admit, I was never too enamored with Ninja Scroll, actually, which is uh, when he started to uh, stop using his own character designs. I'm thinking more the Kawajiri that used to uh, direct and do the character designs for uh, his own shows. For example, probably one of my favourites uh, OVAs from, by Kawajiri would, would be Cyber City 08808, because uh, that was just a fantastic atmospheric cyberpunk OVA. And I do miss the um, death of the 80s cyberpunk, cyberpunk, cyberpunk aesthetic which was prevalent in things like, uh, well, Goku Midnight Eye, Bubblegum Crisis, Blade Runner. I think with stuff, newer stuff, like Ghost of the Shell Standalone Complex, which is, again, one of my favorite anime series, so I'm not saying anything uh, to detract from the brilliance of Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex, but I miss the uh, the aesthetic of the 80s, where everything was just extreme. Uh, lots of neon lights, it was very colorful, all sorts of crazy robots and inventions and whatnot, whereas uh, the Ghost in the Shell universe seems more realistic, I suppose, whereas Cyber City 080808 just seems like 
an almost Star Wars-esque level of fantasy there. It just doesn't seem uh, obtainable in the near future, whereas Ghost in the Shell kind of does. But I, I do miss that about the 80s, you know, Bubblegum Crisis also. I think that's due to several factors, which I won't get into here. But Kawajiri always delivers uh, good action, or very exciting action, and uh, always delivers the goods when it comes to uh, animation also. Uh, he does a lot of the animation himself, or he does specific uh, parts of animation himself, even in stuff that he does not direct, like a Junk Boy, which is a very cute little OVA from the uh, early 90s, as well as the Running Man segment of uh, Mari Mari, or Neo Tokyo, uh, which was one of the first things he directed, apart from Ledsman, which I also enjoy Ledsman a lot. Uh, the Running Man director, screenwriter, did a bit of the animation, and it really typifies uh, what Kawajiri would uh, later be known for, which is um, not necessarily high on plot, but very high on atmosphere and action. And of course, I think he had his orgasm, so to speak, with Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust, which had amazing action, direction, atmosphere, and animation. And uh, that hasn't been topped yet. I remember upon reviewing Highlander The Search for Vengeance that the animation or the the whole production feel and quality was exactly the same as Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust, but I had not seen Bloodlust in quite a few years, and uh, upon re-watching it again, uh, it's in fact far superior. And let's face it, uh, a lot of his stuff is not necessarily politically correct, but, you know, sign of the times. I like guys who have a plan. I like guys who have a roadmap. I like guys who block things out and know what the ending is going to be. Maybe they don't have the line-for-line scenario blocked out, but they've got at least some sort of a clue. This used to be a fashionable style of directing, but now it's pretty obscure. I would say, if I had to pick maybe two anime directors as a favorite because I'm very, very bad at categorizing things into, like, top ten or top five. I just have, like, guys I like. But if I was forced to pick, I would usually say my favorite anime director is Yasuhiro Imagawa, specifically for his work on the OAV series Giant Robo The Day the Earth Stood Still. Certainly, this went through several revisions over time, and it was delayed for several years. But the fact remains is that even if nobody else knew, Imagawa knew the solution to his mystery before he started to write it. Maybe he didn't necessarily know how he was going to end it, but he knew what it was going to end with. Another gentleman who's very good with this is Mamoru Oshii. In recent years, it's become pretty hip and trendy to trash Mamoru Oshii, but I greatly respect him because everything has meaning to him. He's got a plan. Everything is deliberate. Whether or not he's going to tell you what that is, is another story. But I respect this kind of level of craft in filmmaking. I'm not saying there should be no improvisation. I'm not saying there should be nothing that you should just be able to discover as you go. But some things are fundamental. And after a point, anime really lost that. And that point is Neon Genesis Evangelion because Hideaki Anno made that show up off the seat of his pants and it made huge, huge money and then everyone decided, yep, this is the way to do anime from now on and it kind of is the way they'd make anime ever since. 
Granted, it was always true to some extent, but hey, they at least kind of, sort of knew where they were going. Question number five. Do you read manga? What was the last manga you read? I do read manga, but not at the level that you might expect. I generally collect anime exclusively. I'd say I have about an average manga collection. It's not huge. Um, I'm slowly starting to buy more and more. It's just, it's really expensive and there's so many volumes. It's, uh, it's like I had to pick either anime or manga at one point, but now I'm trying to like catch up. Um, the last manga I read was Dr. Slump Volume 3. I really fell in love with the Dr. Slump anime. And the the manga, I don't like it as much. I don't like the character design of the characters. Whoa, cat fight. Break it up. Hold on. Sorry, I had a little bit of a confrontation with my two little kitty cats here. They were fighting. Anyways, like I was saying, Dr. Slump the manga, I don't think it comes off as good as the anime. I think the anime is actually better. I don't like the character design of the manga as much as the anime. And it's just not as good. I don't know, but I have no choice, basically. There's no fan sub, except for the old Hawaii TV ones. I got the two batches. You get them off Naya Torrance. But, man, this is a show that... It's really depressing when I think that I can't see this whole show fan sub. Because, man, I love Dr. Slump. And that's one of the main reasons why I'm doing the movies uh, 1 and 2 with uh, box fan subs. But, yeah, Dr. Slump was the last one I read. The stuff I buy, like, I bought all the Cobra releases, the adaptations, like... the. I think it was 12 volumes. Yeah, 12 volumes Viz put out. Um, it's okay. It ends at like the greatest weapon in the world. Ark, you know that Ark and Cobra where that egg with the eye, you know, and they're in the pyramids and all that crazy shit. It ends there. So it's not like it's not like the full like Cobra manga, at least the original one, but it's good enough. And anything by Comics 1, it's a company that went out of business, but Comic 1, they put out like a, a lot of great stuff. Like I'm getting all the Buichi Terasawa stuff like I just got Kabuto and um, Goku Midnight Eye and like I said, Cobra. I love all that stuff. Um, Nausicaa, of course. That's huge. I really want to pick that up. I got all the Astro Boy. I got all the Phoenix. Um, I got all the Galaxy Express that's out. And um, yeah, I have my eye on Nausicaa. I, I really want to grab that up. It's just really a great uh, manga. But yeah, last one I read, Dr. Slump Volume 3. And honestly, I'm not failing it that much. I'm just like, basically, I'm reading it because I'm like in mourning. And the anime is basically really, really close to what happens in the manga. So I'm basically just reading the manga because I'm so sad that I can't, you know, see any more of the anime. So yeah, there you go. Dr. Slump Volume 3. I do read manga. Um, I don't read as much manga as I would like to read. But uh, I guess that's just, you know, the problems with being a person who likes to watch anime and play video games and read manga and, you know, all the other things that I like to do. But uh, I guess the last one that I read from beginning to end was the Crying Freeman series for the review that I did for AWO. But I'm currently uh, going through Starving Man, another uh, fine work. And um, I've been also getting through Mew, uh, MW, by Osamu Tezuka. Um, liking uh, all of those quite a bit, but uh, certainly for different reasons. I don't read manga much at all anymore, and even in the past, I didn't read it as much as I watched anime in my teens and early 20s. Yeah, pretty much anything that was brought over to America and converted into the standard comic book format got at least a sniff, if not an outright devouring. Appleseed, Outlanders, Crying Freeman, Venus Wars, Adam Warren's rendition of The Dirty Pair, just to name a few. Now, that may seem like a lot, but I was also watching a lot of anime. 
As I grew older, I dabbled with original Japanese volumes. I still have a handful of Pad Labor, Ah oh My Goddess, Video Girl Eye, Gunsmith Cats, and 3x3Eyes on my shelf, but these days I've largely limited to myself to four titles. Osamu Tezuka's Buddha, Naoki Urasawa's Pluto and 20th Century Boys, and the one that I read most recently, Kazuo Koike's Lone Wolf and Cub, Volume 5 to be specific. I've started to read it more uh, because it was prohibitively expensive to buy. Uh, and I know manga scans are very popular these days, but uh, there's something about sitting at a computer to read a manga that just uh, it doesn't seem comfortable. But uh, recently, as some people know, I've got this uh, rather cool uh, nine-inch little portable LCD um, multimedia device, which uh, is almost exactly the size of a Tonkaban manga book. So uh, I've got a lot of manga scans and put it on that. And uh, it's great. Resolution's high, so it doesn't hurt the eyes. And it's um, So I've been burning through quite a bit of manga. And the last one, which, I, which is incomplete, but uh, it's the homunculus manga by Hideo Yamamoto, who also created uh, what I would say is the, uh, not for the squeamish, but the manga classic Ichi the Killer, which is far superior to the uh, film, which kind of uh, neglected some of the uh, deeper psychological aspects of the manga and sort of went for more uh, exploitation. But uh, yeah, homunculus, which is about a fellow who uh, undergoes something called trepanation, which is where they uh, drill a hole in the skull and uh, which results in a perceived uh, reduction of pressure in the brain, which uh, creates uh, a childlike state where you are more perceptive to uh, the supernatural and other phenomena. Very interesting and fascinating. Uh, it's definitely a sane and work for older men. It's not Naruto or something like that. So, homunculus. Uh, yeah, I do read manga. Um probably a lot more frequently than I watch anime. Now, I watch a lot of fan subs and uh, ream of DVDs because literally um, in Ireland and in the UK there isn't like a, an outlet for uh, streaming video online and back when streaming video online was not a, uh, an option the amount of rental places that actually rented anime where I was was kind of comparatively small. There was a place called uh, Charposters, which is kind of like a rival to uh, Extravision, which is the Irish version of Blockbuster. Um, but Charposters was the only one where you could rent this stuff, and you know, there were all these weird titles. Like most of it was manga video. Some of it was, uh, uh, was uh, Kai Sekai. Kai Seike, something like that. They handled some of the later releases of Overfiend. You could pick up some of their titles. But it was kind of sparse pickings. So I kind of... I, uh, I read a lot more manga. It's just um, I'm my brain is geared towards reading material rather than viewing material. I know I... I know a lot of people might know that I'm, I'm a film student and I'm a film production student as well. So, you know, I would naturally want to watch more things but uh, I read as prolifically as I can so you know I have a fairly substantial manga collection now not something like on Anime News Network's shelf life where you would see like somebody's collection nothing crazy like that when I get tired of a title or I've read it so many times I can memorize all the 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 words in it I just get rid of it I sell it or I give it away so I try and keep my collection healthy the last manga I read was Kurosaki Corpse Delivery Service, and that was by Eiji Otsuka and Hozui Yamazaki. 
Uh, Kurosaki Corpse Delivery Service is just one of the best dark little titles that are out there. Um, I would have said I was reading the first volume of MPD Psycho by, I think, the same author, uh, Otsuka, but unfortunately it hasn't come in yet at my local bookstore, so I'm forced to, uh, I was just forced to buy something on the spot, and I just saw uh, Corpse Delivery Service Volume 4. I'd already got the first three volumes, so I figured, hey. I do read manga. I read manga quite a bit. Now, especially... I didn't used to read so much manga because there wasn't really as much manga available in the U.S., especially around the time when I was first getting into anime. Back then, manga was rare. Now it's extremely commonplace. You can not only purchase manga in pretty much any bookstore, you can read scanned translations online. As such, I probably read manga fairly often. The last manga I read was actually Swallowing the Earth by Osamu Tezuka. It's what I'm about to review in the next episode of the Anime World Order podcast when we actually get around to recording it. For my thoughts on that, well, wait for the episode. Question number six. Is there a character designer you particularly like? Now, character design for me is very important because, like I said, I think you can appreciate anime on so many levels. I don't think it's just particular story that's important. I mean... Of course, that's entertaining, but for my crazy mind, maybe it's just me, but um, I appreciate anime. Some anime has horrible story, but it's just so beautiful that I fall in love with it because obviously anime is a work of art, especially the stuff that's drawn or painted. It is works of art, and I really appreciate that aspect, and I think that a good character design can sometimes save a show, and for me, yeah, it's really important character design, so I buy a lot of character design books, and I just... I get such a satisfaction out of a certain uh, look, and uh, it's really important for me. So, okay, ladies and gentlemen, this is a tough question. There's so many great character designers, but I finally decided on Toshiki Hirano, or he's also known as Toshihiro Hirano, and uh, he worked on Cosmo Pink Shock, which I it's not the best OVA, but I love the character design. I'll say two shows, and this will justify why this is my pick, is the character design that's tops for me. And you'll understand why. First, I'll say Ixer 1. Man, this show, I'm madly, deeply in love with Ixer 1. It's so beautiful. This is why 80s anime is tops, and that's why 80s anime is the best. Yes, it is the best. Trust me, it is the best. Quality-wise, there's there's nothing compared to it. Ixer 1, Megazone 2-3, Part 1. Do I really need to say anything else? These shows are just stunning. The character designs are just bring tears to your eyes. And it's just so satisfying. I mean, if I won the lottery, I would definitely get like, I don't know, I'd take like cells from Ixer 1 and Megazone. I'd get like famous painters to like paint huge like replicas on my wall. That's how crazy I am about character design. So yeah, Hirano, your tops. Just, oh my God. Ixer. I love you so much. Yeah, there you go. Character design. It is important if you think about it. And uh, there's the tops. I guess my favorite uh, character designer ever is probably Haruhiko Mikimoto, even though he's, you know, the the breadth of work that he's done is actually very, very small when it comes to anime. I also really, really like Kenichi Sonoda, uh, two guys that don't really work much in the industry now, uh, which is not to say that... um, they don't have good character designers working today. Um, but 
I guess uh, a lot of the stuff today kind of looks a little bit more similar to each other than I'm used to seeing. But um, yeah, they're still good character designers, but those are kind of the top ones for me. In the past, my answer would have been Leiji Matsumoto of Yamato and Captain Harlock fame, or Masumone Shiro of Appleseed and Black Magic M66 fame, or maybe even Haruhiko Mikimoto of Macross. Also in the running would have been Yoshikazu Yasuhiko of Mobile Suit Gundam and Crusher Joe fame, and Akemi Takata of Mobile Police Padlaper. But overall favorite? If I had to wear t-shirts emblazoned with his characters for the rest of my days? Hayao Miyazaki, again. And I'm expecting that your definition of character designs includes non-human creations as well, because if it doesn't, then I think the Catbus, Totoro, and Calcifer would like to have a word with you. A lot of you might know I'm a big child of the 80s. I love 80s film, I love 80s music, and more and more I have a predilection for 80s anime as well. So some of my character designers that I like are firmly rooted in the, either the... 1980s or the early 1990s. So, off the top of my head, uh, Yuji Moriyama, who did things like uh, Project Eiko and uh, All Cultural Cat Girl Nuku Nuku. I just like the way he draws people in general. Um, even if you skip the fact that 90% of the cast in uh, Project Eiko are all girls, he does just functional drawings for people. Um, when he has lead characters, he always puts a lot more energy, a lot more life into them. And I just love how he draws things. Uh, on the other 80s front, it will probably have to be uh, Akemi Takada, who did things like uh, Kimigori Orange Road and Yuretsu Yatsura. She's, uh, she draws people in a particular way that you just know, just off the top of your head, that it's intrinsically an 80s look. The hair is so big. Um, the eyes are really, they're not small and they're not large, they're somewhere in between. Yeah, it's just, she's just really good at it and I just like her drawings. Um, a little small confession, some of you might know, I, I own all of Kimigori Orange the TV series. It's one of those guilty little pre pleasures that I have. I just, you know, I just love the artwork in it, it's just so cool. Um, on a more modern front, I don't know, like, I'm not a big fan of anime today in this in the sense of i will watch anime but there is nothing really that i will say well that changed the course of my life it's not one of those things for me um it has to really fundamentally shake me up to to make me say well this was a great series like for example i don't know people are gonna scoff but um something like uh the melancholy of haruhi suzumiya kind of I won't say shook me or made me stop, but it was one of those series where you can tell that something else is going on behind the screen, like the the animators, the production staff, they're having a they're having a laugh and a joke by themselves, and we're not in on it. But it's not one of these cruel jokes where the rug's going to be pulled from under you and you're going to have everyone laugh at you. It's just one of those series where you know something else is going on behind the series, you just don't know what. And if you take it on face value, it's a show about cute girls and just one uh, insane girl in particular but if you don't well it's just one of those series that just i won't say it has hidden depths to it but you know it's just one of those things like i said on the modern side of character creators i would probably say yoshiyuki sadamoto who did uh things like ava gunbuster uh, one and two um uh, fulikuli Nadia, Secret of Blue Water, The Wings of Onyames, and the upcoming Summer Wars. I just like how he draws people. He has this really cool, 
realistic style that's grounded in the fundamentals of anime and manga construction. It's just, when you look at Sadamoto's work, it's just, I don't know, he makes them realistic looking without them being realistic. Nor does he make, uh, on the same vein, he doesn't make them outlandish like they could never exist in real life. I just like the, those characters on um This is probably my favorite question. Um, yeah, I have several. I do enjoy Kenichi Sonata's character designs because they typify 1980s anime for me. From point of view, I, I really do enjoy them. Um, but I think my favorite two character designers would probably be Katsuhiro Otomo, who uh, has very distinct uh, character designs. You know, you know it's something by him when you uh, look at the imagery, the character designs. Um, and he's also a very good mechanical designer too, I think. And uh, But probably my number one, if I really had to pick one, would definitely be uh, Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, who directed and also did the character designs for um, Venus Wars, Arion, Crusher Joe, uh, Giant Gorg, and uh, lots more. Um, of course, he is the guy for Gundam character designs when you see all the... Um, Universal Century stuff that uh, he did a lot of the character designs for that and it's just absolutely beautiful uh, again <clears throat> it's quite distinctive at least to the anime connoisseur and it walks a very fine line between detailed and uh, cartoony and I, I think again uh, Yoshiaki Kawajiri's uh, character designs are also very distinctive and incredibly detailed which is one of the things that I think attracts people to his work. Uh, but obviously he hasn't done his own character designs for quite a while. I'm going to buck the trend here and say not especially. There are character designers who I can recognize, but I don't know if they're really character designers who I say, oh, wow, I love these character designs. I mean, sure, there are guys I like. Akemi Takata, okay, that's a girl. Osamu Dezaki. Hey. Yoshiaki Kawajiri does some mean character designs, right? But as a rule, I don't really know too much about character designers. I mean, I maybe I know enough to say I wish all the porno was character designed by Asuki Kuranai, but he doesn't do any work anymore, does he, bastard? So while I'm sure you'll be hearing plenty of praise for, you know, Haruhiko Mikimoto or whoever, Kenichi Sonata, I guess, character designers, not really the thing I live and die by. Though I can pick them out, sometimes. Question number seven. What do you think had a greater influence on anime overall? SDF Macross or Mobile Suit Gundam? I would say almost certainly Gundam. Even though Macross is far and away my more favorite show. But when you when you watch a, a show, a kid show from the 1970s, and, you know, something from before 79 when Gundam came out. And then you watch Gundam and you see just how much different Gundam was from, like, everything else at the time. And really how people just really didn't care for it. And that it it had this this bad guy that that was, you know, quite a likable guy. Although, you know, this was this was all territory that had been, you know built up over time through shows like Combat Alert V and Voltus V. Um, I think I actually give a lot more credit to Voltus V for actually laying the groundwork for Gundam than anything else. Um, Macross, I mean, the, the 
guys who put together Macross, um, they have said that, you know, I believe that they were actually in college part of like a Gundam club, or they put together a Gundam newsletter, so I mean, that Gundam laid the groundwork for Macross, and Gundam's still going today, even though it's not something that I'm, you know, terribly into in any way. But, um, yeah, definitely, definitely Gundam. Mobile Suit Gundam had the greater influence, most obviously because it came first. I don't think there could have been a Macross without a Gundam. It showed that giant robots were not stupidly powerful things that only one young man filled with burning justice could control. Anyone with a proper training could be a pilot. And while both shows had huge cast of characters, amazing mechanical and character designs that stand the test of time, and they've both spawned numerous side stories, sequels, alternate timeline shows, and so on, and both still have huge merchandise lines, only one show can lay claim to the modeling term Gunpla. And I think you know what it is. I'd probably say Gundam had a lot of influence, but Macross probably had a more defining influence. It was the first series, really, that I can think of to kind of smash through that anime series and music. And the fact that they incorporated music into the actual storyline, therefore making it accessible to tap into a library of music publishers who would be quite ham who would be quite happy to just lend their support to this. But also, it kind of paved the way for this collaboration between the music companies in Japan and the anime companies in Japan and the broadcasters in Japan. So that's why you see a lot of series and a lot of movies where there's always a music company who's produced some of it. So, you know, whether or not that was a positive influence or not, I can't say for certain. But I'd probably say Macross had more influence than Gundam. I know, I know... Someone is going to disagree with me, or someone's going to have a, a differing opinion. In that case, and in that regard, I welcome your opinion and your differing opinion at that. Whilst I personally like Macross more than uh, Mobile Suit Gundam, I think that was pivotal for bringing uh, the real robot genre uh, into greater prominence. So I think I'm definitely going to have to say Mobile Suit Gundam. Which, whilst Macross is definitely a classic, uh, I think the creation of Mobile Suit Gundam facilitated the creation of uh, SDF Macross and all the other stuff like Votoms and, well, the list goes on. Tricky question, because I think the answer depends on what aspect of anime are you talking about? I think as far as an overall industry-affecting mechanism... Mobile Suit Gundam had a bigger influence on anime than Macross. Part of it could be said that maybe without Mobile Suit Gundam, there would be no Macross, as Mobile Suit Gundam is commonly credited as sparking the trend towards what are known as the sort of real robot phase of giant robot anime of the 1980s. There's also certainly a whole lot more Mobile Suit Gundam that's been made. If you think of some of the biggest anime movies of all time... Shaw's Counterattack is certainly one of them. If you think of some of the biggest OAVs of all time, Mobile Suit Gundam 0083 would definitely be one of them. And if you think of some of the biggest, most popular television shows of all time, certainly the first Gundam series is known to this day by the hardcore. But similarly, without the various spin-offs of Gundam that were made, American anime fandom wouldn't be where it is. The most notable one being... Gundam Wing, 
broadcast in America around the 2000s really sparked the anime explosion of the last 10 years. Mobile Suit Gundam inspired far more imitators, particularly all the various other Sunrise 50-episode mecha series, established more character archetypes that continue to be reused to this day, crafted more merchandise, particularly in the toy model kit phase, really helped solidify, probably even more so than Macross, the tie between anime studios and record label companies, and brought in a huge amount of women, particularly gay pornography-obsessed women, that are now the motor and backbone of the anime industry that as we know it today. So I'm going to say it's Gundam. Question number eight. Um, if you had to, could you name five essential anime to watch? I know most of the people asking this question are going to try to be a very um, politically correct, try to make a list for new fans, kind of introduce them, try to be unbiased. But not me. I want to be as biased as possible. I want to be the anime dictator. I'm in charge of this list. And uh, I'm going to be totally biased. The essential anime are what are essential to my heart. And I hope the other guys kind of just give me a crazy list too that's essential to them. Now... The essential anime in my world, if I was king, I'm going to give it to you right now. Number one, 80s Astro Boy. I love this show. It's everything good about anime. It's beautiful character design, interesting story, heartfelt action, drama. 80s Astro Boy, it's the, it's the prime of all Astro Boy shows. So yeah, number one, 80s Astro Boy. Number two, Galaxy Express 3.9, the movies, one and two. Just broke my heart. Made me a super fan. So yeah, of course, Galaxy Express 3.9. I love you so much. Number three, Space Battleship Yamato. It's just too important, man. I gotta go with it. Number four, I'm going with I'm going with SDF Macross. I love SB, SDF Macross. Yeah, yeah. Number five, I'm going with Space Adventure Cobra. I love it. Big ups to Gerald and Daryl. I heard you on the Anime News Network uh, podcast defending Cobra. Big ups, dudes. That's awesome. So yeah, number five, Space Adventure Cobra. A biased list, not really a fair list. People could say that's not essential. You didn't. You have too much sci-fi. So what? It's my list. So there. Ha ha ha. Also, while you're at it, why don't you throw in original Captain Harlock, Dirty Pair for good measure, and uh, Votums. Yeah, there you have it. Mm, five essential animes. That's almost impossible to really uh, say quite conclusively because there's just so much, so much out there that has been, you know, influential. But. Uh, I would probably go with uh, Rose of Versailles. I think Rose of Versailles might be the greatest anime TV series of the 1970s. Then I would go with the original Gundam movie trilogy. Not the Gundam TV series. I don't think the Gundam TV series was that good. The Gundam movies, I think, were far, far superior. Then I'd go with a coupling of uh, Macross, Estia, Macross, and probably Do You Remember Love? If, you know, one or the other, I would go with Do You Remember Love? It's easier to watch. But um, all together, I think they're quite important. Then, uh, The Wings of Oniamis, which I believe is one of the finest anime movies ever made. And... After that, probably Nausicaa of the Valley of Wind. Uh, It's actually not my favorite Miyazaki movie. My favorite one is actually uh, Porco Rosso. But 
this one that 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 is such a, an amazing movie to watch Nausicaa uh, it's uh, just incredible what they were able to do when that came out and I think that that is such a fantastic groundwork for for Ghibli to get into so I believe yes um, Rose of Versailles uh, the original Gundam movie trilogy, uh, Macross, and uh, Do You Remember Love, um, The Wings of Oniamis, and uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of Wind. Here's my list, quick and dirty. Cowboy Bebop, Arrivederci Yamato, Project Aiko, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, The Wings of Oniamis. Now, to bump it up to a true top 10, I'd be remiss if I didn't include Akita, Dirty Pair Project Eden, Majingo Zed, Macross Do You Remember Love, and Bubblegum Crisis. At least selected episodes of that. The tough one. Um, uh, it's one of those things like choose your favorite child, that kind of thing. You couldn't ask a parent to do that, really. No level-headed parent, anyway. So I'm going to say this. Uh, first up, Millennium Actress directed by Satoshi Kon. Um, I know people would want me to say Perfect Blue, and I do love Perfect Blue with every fiber of my being. It's one of those amazing thrillers that, you know, originally it was supposed to be a live-action feature, but was later turned into an animation, and then you think hard about it, and you realize it couldn't really have worked as a live-action feature, not as as we could conceive it, because it's just so mind-bending. To get back to my actual choice of Millennium Actress, um, Millennium Actress is just one of those movies where you just sit there transfixed by what's happening and uh, situations change, scenarios uh, change, backgrounds blur and you're not sure what's real, what's fake, what's a person's own inner monologue and what's actually happening and it's at the end of the movie you're just left almost with tears in your eyes because you just realise you've just been through somebody's life and they were quite welcoming to you which is always a good thing. Uh, number two on the list would probably be Macross, Do You Remember Love? Uh, even if you don't like Macross, uh, Do You Remember Love is a fantastic way of introducing you to the entire original series, compressed into two, two and a half hours. And it's just so gorgeous, the animation. You can just see every single frame, every single cell is lovingly illustrated with a lot of attention to detail and a great respect for the medium. Plus the fact that it's just one of those films where you can sit them down and if they don't like old animation, fine, you know, you're never going to convince them. But they say, look, if you're going to watch one old animation, just watch this old animation. Number three, Space Battleship Yamato, or Yamato, whichever way you pronounce it. Sometimes known as Star Blazers in the United States by its American fans. It kind of more or less tore down the the veil of the West and uh, Japan in the sense that here was something that could be exported, could be changed, could be modified, and could play non-stop in the syndication circuits on TV in America. Um, Star Blazers didn't really have an effect over in Europe, not, not, not in a quantifiable sense that I can give to you. It, it was just one of those weird series where it came to America, it changed a whole load of people's lives by just simply being on air. And, you know... To this day, people still talk about Yamato, Stroke Star Blazers, with loving reverence and fond nostalgia. And that can't be a bad thing, can it? Number four? Oh, God. Uh, okay, this is a, between Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind by Hayao Miyazaki, uh, 
or Isio Takahata's Only Yesterday. And for anyone who's curious, Nausicaa is probably one of the most amazing movies I've ever watched. I know a couple of people do prefer Mononoke, Princess Mononoke, to Nausicaa, but I love Nausicaa better. It just, it's just something about the movie. It's just, it speaks to me on a level that Mononoke doesn't. Only yesterday. Okay, this is basically for every anime fan who's listening to the show and is under the age of 25. Buy a copy of Only Yesterday. You can buy it now from the UK, from like Amazon UK or something like that, on DVD with proper English subtitles and what have you. If you don't want to go through the, the import route from like Korea or wherever it is who might have English subtitles because I own the English DVD from Optimum and it's a great DVD. Buy it, as I said. Don't watch it. If you're on the edge of 25, you will not get Only Yesterday. However, if you're approaching 30, or better still, if you're just over the age of 30, and you're kind of looking back on your life, maybe your teenage years, maybe your growing up years, that kind of thing, and you're trying to make a summation of your life saying, what did I do that was so special? Have I done anything that's special? When you're about to get the answer to your question, watch Only Yesterday, and it'll help you solidify your answer once and for all. That's the only advice I can give you. So, okay, I would probably say, off the top of my head, an essential anime to watch. Um, just for for sheer dumb fun, probably Project Echo, the original movie. It has girls, it has mecha, it has explosions, it has parody up the wazoo. Everything from Fist of the North Star to Captain Harlock and everything in between. It's just one of those wickedly awesome movies where it's open brain, take out brain, leave brain at door, sit down, enjoy. Repeat as necessary. And and that's it. That's my five. Um, all the cream lemons, MD Geist, Legend of the Overfit. No. Okay. Um, hmm. That depends from the uh, what you want to showcase. I mean, I do think uh, the 80s it was representative of some of the greatest and worst, but the worst greatest stuff, as well as uh, production design. But, I mean, I suppose, you know, if we're thinking of introducing someone to anime, uh, five most important ones, I'd have to say Akira, although not everyone's going to get that, but it's definitely uh, mind-blowing. Even today, I think the animation's just to, to die for. And I think you definitely have a Miyazaki film there. I'd probably choose... Well, actually, Castle of Cagliostro. Um, although, uh, you know, is not a Studio Ghibli film, but I still think uh, it's a very enjoyable film. But uh, I suppose my favourite Miyazaki film would probably be Kiki's Delivery Service, but I might be in the minority there. For the men, I think Berserk, because it crosses the very uh, fine line of um, hardcore, sort of cool fantasy action and amazing, fantastic, riveting, character-driven uh, storytelling, which I was just blown away by the level of storytelling. Um, it's actually one of the things, one of the few examples where I kind of like the anime more than the manga. Um, that's a whole podcast in itself, but I think the anime of Berserk is, is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So brilliant that I have not watched it uh, since I watched it the first time because I 
I don't know. It's just something that you can only watch every now and then, I think, because uh, you don't want to um, get sick of it. You don't want to have anything but the greatest memories of such a wonderful show. I know that sounds stupid, but hey. It's purely nostalgia speaking. Well, not purely, but mostly nostalgia speaking. But I think uh, Project Aiko, the Project Aiko series, um, I think, how can I best say this, is that, well... Yes, it, it is a comedy, as well as an homage to uh, umpteen different anime genres and uh, titles. But if we can say that Kill Bill was a similar homage to um, Asian cinema and uh, spaghetti westerns, we can say that uh, Kill Bill was too masturbatory, I think. It, it wanted to showcase the best of this sort of cinema before it, uh, sorry, after its time. So uh, there's a nostalgic quality to that film, whereas Project Aiko was created right in the midst of anime's golden era. Top production values and uh, a very experimental time and where Japan had a lot of money to throw on stuff. So not only does it sort of uh, parody and pay, uh, and pay homage to some of the uh, anime greats, but it actually kind of surpasses a lot of them. Uh, it, it gets better than a lot of them because uh, it's done just so well. And finally, probably my favourite, or definitely one of the favourites, if not the favourite, anime film would be Wings of Oniamis, because it is just such fantastic world-building and storytelling. And it was actually the uh, one I uh, showed to my father when I wanted to show him what anime was, and he, he enjoyed that immensely, and uh, it opened his mind to uh, more anime. Yeah, I think Wings of Oniamis is definitely... Um, Probably yeah, one of the top picks of these five to to show people. Obviously, you would want to show uh, more intelligent people because it is not a show for people who just want sort of guns and boobies and whatnot. And that stuff has its place and it's all very enjoyable, I know. But yeah, Wings of Oniyama's very special. It's very difficult to choose five, only five. Just five, huh? Difficult to say. I know a lot of people would be content to just list a lot of Studio Ghibli Hayao Miyazaki movies and call it a day. But in my experience, anytime I've ever tried to show those movies to groups, they never get through all of them. So I don't know if they're essential, much as I'd like some of them to be. But hey, since I was just talking about them, Mobile Suit Gundam would be an essential anime to watch just because it was so influential on everything that followed. I would say people should at least watch that original movie trilogy. And Super Dimensional Fortress Macross is also great, though I think a lot of its influence was ultimately not the best parts of Macross so much as the parts of Macross I didn't really like. Much as I greatly enjoy the television series for the original as well as Do You Remember Love and Macross Plus, it's not like anime really followed its example in the ways that I would like. But hey, you gotta mention something by Studio Ghibli or Hayao Miyazaki. So I'm going to pick a slightly dark horse candidate and say either Only Yesterday or Grave of the Fireflies, not even Miyazaki movies. These are Takahata films. And the reason I picked them is because they're essential to watch on the grounds that they demonstrate what anime is capable of that traditional Western animation is not really willing to touch subjects of those caliber with a 10-foot pole, either the atrocities of war or an anime specifically for middle-aged adults. This is essential because 
it demonstrates to you that anime isn't all just kid stuff and it's not all just violence or just robots or sex or what have you. So that's two titles down. Let me think of three more. You may be surprised that I didn't just say Giant Robo, but that doesn't really appeal to everybody. I'm sure if I wanted to sound highfalutin, I would say, oh, you must watch The Wings of Oniamis because this truly shows what Gainax is capable of. And it's also a pretty darn good movie. You know, I probably wouldn't object to that. Yeah, you can put that one down too. I remember when I would always first try to get people into anime, I didn't really have much patience, even back when I was 14, for people turning into those kinds of jerks on the internet who just went on and on about Rama one half. So anytime anyone ever expressed interest in anime, I'd show them two movies, The Wings of Oniamis and Night on the Galactic Railroad, usually back-to-back. If you were still paying attention or still sticking around or not comatose, you could be an anime fan. I think one person made it. I still know him. So heck, we'll put Night on the Galactic Railroad on there. Absolute essential viewing. Nah, I'm just kidding. (laughs) My real number four pick. Earlier I said action was my favorite genre. Maybe I should actually name something from the action genre. I don't know if I can really say Fist of the North Star, though, like a lot of people who know who I am would probably be expecting me to say. It's kind of a difficult thing to get into. Heck, I wasn't even into it. Till something inside me died. So instead, I'll extend things more onto the sci-fi drama side of things, even though I already kind of named two of them, and say Space Battleship Yamato as an essential anime you must watch. Again, very significant as far as influence. Plus, it's a great show. I'm not saying you gotta watch maybe every single movie, but definitely watch at least the first season and that second movie. So what is it we got so far? Let's see, I think it was Gundam or Macross, Grave of the Fireflies, or Only Yesterday, Space Battleship Yamato. Huh, if I make these either-or conditions, then I guess I'm only at number three. If not, I'm done right now. Still, I feel my picks are a little too limited on the sci-fi, particularly robot side of things. So I want to throw a little curveball in here, get some variety, since that's what anime is all about, right? As long as it's not crappy variety. This is also an either-or proposition. Eh, maybe not. I'm going to recommend as my fourth pick, The Rose of Versailles. Or Revolutionary Girl Utena, even though I would say it would be better to watch Rose of Versailles and then watch Utena. So maybe I could revise that to be The Rose of Versailles or Brother Dear Brother. So get that Ryoko Ikeda crazy one-two punch. A lot of times I seem to just write off shoujo or not talk about shoujo. I think it's because modern day shoujo doesn't really do it for me. The girl stuff. I kind of like the the crazy 70s things more. They're more girly, more melodramatic, and therefore more awesome. A big, huge part of what makes anime what it is, is the fact that it can appeal to so many different groups and I don't really want to dismiss Jojo, even though I, I seem to be doing that a lot more in my later age. I notice it. I do. But I, I just I haven't been uh, doing as much to fight the tide of that. But yeah, that's an essential one to watch. The Rose of Versailles. I mean, it's hard to say, hey, watch Legend of Galactic Heroes. That's essential. It's just such a, such a long title. Rose of Versailles, pretty long too. But it's got that whole historical drama thing going forward. It's got the whole really girly thing going for it. Plus, it's got all that political intrigue jazz that I like so much. So yeah, that's a solid number four pick. I mean, I could just say number five, watch Akira, right? No one's seeing Akira anymore. That movie's great. Still holds up. But yeah, not so sure. I'm a big stickler for anthology pieces, right? So I'm going to pick one anthology, and I guess because it was the first one I ever saw, I'm going to end this 
five essential anime. That's really something like ten essential anime with Robot Carnival, 80s anthology all about robots in some form or fashion. I know I've really front-loaded the list with robot things between the Gundam Macross thing and this. But that's part of just what brought me to anime in the first place was the whole uh, animated science fiction sort of thing. Not really there anymore. It's not really a selling point. Nowadays, it's more like girls with breasts, oh, and also robots, as opposed to robots, oh, and also girls with breasts. There's a difference. Question number nine. Now, this is even tougher question, but could you name the one single most important person of all times in anime? Okay, number nine. This is a crazy question, and it's sort of an unfair question to ask, but I just wanted to hear all the different interesting response. Who's the one most important person in the history of anime? It's obvious. We all know who it is. It's Osama Tezuka. He's the man. There's no doubt about it. Um, no one can really come close to him. He did it all. He set the standard. He is the king. And uh, very few can sit in the same room, the same throne room as the king, Osama Tezuka, but a few can. And this one guy, I think his influence on anime is huge. And as you may know or you may not know, Anime 82 is the official podcast of the anime love. And we're all about the anime love. Osama Tezuka's heart is massive. And um, a person for me who was important to me and I think is the most influential push person for me overall, uh, other than Osama Tezuka, I'm going to give him the props and I'm going to say this guy instead because uh, we got to keep it interesting. Obviously, everyone's going to say Osama Tezuka, but i got to say someone else just to make it be cool. I'm going with Liji Masamoto. This man, he sits on the throne with a selected few he has a monumental influence. Shows like Harlock, Space Battleship Yamato, Galaxy 3-9. Interesting character design. Very unique. The stories always had multiple plots. A simple sci-fi mixed with questions of humanity, questions of morality. Complex mixed with simple, beautiful, heartfelt, over-the-top melodrama high space fantasy, just a massive list of work. Working on Space Battleship Yamato, without without him, there would be no Space Battleship Yamato. Let's face it, okay? We could say the niche, but come on. We know who really was behind it. It was this man. So big ups. I give the number one spot to Liji Masamoto, though we also know it's truly Osamu Tezuka. But Liji Masamoto, you truly are one of the kings of the anime love. Uh, let's just say a tie, okay? But we all know it's really Tezuka. But Liji Masamoto, for the youngsters listening, if you don't know who he is, look in the mirror. You're probably an emo kid listening to this. Look in, you see your hair? Yeah. Masamoto came up with that like in 1970. So big ups to him. He's the grandfather of emo. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I'm just joking. If you're a youngster and you like emo, that's cool. I'm down. Mm, that's a pretty tough question, obviously. Um... It would be pretty impossible to, you know, boil things down to just one person. But if I had to, uh, I would probably actually go with uh, Gona Guy. And uh, probably it's reasonable to ask, why would you go with Gona Guy? Why not uh, Tezuka? Why not Miyazaki? And there's an ex excellent, excellent case for Shotaro Ishinomori, Isao Takahata, or Tadao Nagahama all very, very important people, 
But I'm actually going with Gonagai because I feel that if we had a Gonagai character in America, that our entire entertainment in terms of, you know, children's entertainment would be completely different. And I say that because Osamu Tezuka was actually pushed in certain directions by Gonagai. Um, in fact, some of the work that Tezuka came out with was sometimes in response, supposedly, to what Gonagai was doing at the time. And, you know, Tezuka was doing these safe kids shows, and then Gonagai would come out with uh, Shameless School or Devil Man or something like that that just, just rocked people's worlds. And, and then this forced um, uh, Tezuka to, you know, th rethink what he was doing and try things that were a bit different, and so he came out with things like A Thousand and One Nights and uh, Mew and Ode to Kirihito, these dark works that were, you know, also trying, you know, trying to show that, you know, he can be edgy he can be something that's, you know, for adults and for intelligent people. And I, I'm not going to pretend that, you know, Gonagai's work is incredibly, you know, intelligent, perhaps. But w what he does is it's just, he, he makes us uncomfortable. He, he was the one who back, you know, 30 years ago now, created a show where the villain or the the baddest guy in the show was the hero and the the hero of the the show was was the villain basically he switched things around completely he um, and you know this just he was such a major major influence that the work that has come out because of him I think is is far more important necessarily than you know necessarily just than his work alone so that is why I think he is the most important person in anime. Not, not to say that any of those other people deserve any less credit. I have to go with what I think is the obvious answer. Osamu Tezuka. Without his body of work, there wouldn't be anime as we know it today. And without his tireless work ethic, one that cannot be matched by mere mortals, despite attempts from every animation studio out there to do so to its employees, we may not have an anime industry much longer. Oh. oh boy, most influential person in anime. Oh wow. Uh, I would probably say, and this is probably going to get people up in arms about this. It's a really, it's probably Yoshinobu Nishizaki, the producer of such things as Base Battleship Yamato, Thunder Sub, Legend of the Overfiend, and Odin, Photon Sailor, Starlight. People are probably kind of sitting there kind of going, huh? What? Huh? Without the niche, as he sometimes referred to, we wouldn't have Yamato. Without Yamato, no Star Blazers. Without Star Blazers, we would have had to find another entry anime to help break the American market. And at the time... There was Battle of the Planets. Macross, as it was later refashioned into Robotech, was another couple of years away. So there would have been nothing in between. So it's conjecture as to whether or not Macross as Robotech would have had the impetus to break through the American market. So the niche is responsible for more or less opening up the anime market to us here in the West. Um, you can you know you can argue whether or not he's that much of an influence. But for my money, as much as I don't like how he sometimes does business, he's very much a pragmatist. It's basically, it's the bottom line is all he cares about is his 
his cut, his money. Somebody told me that his his favorite mantra is "Where is my ten percent?" Well, you know, you can say what you want about the gentleman, but he puts out an amazingly influential series, and he changes the course of most of anime in America for the better, really, because without, as I said, without Yamato, there would have been a, an entirely fundamentally different anime market in America. Now, I know a lot of people would probably say Miyazaki and probably would say Tezuka, but the thing is, Tezuka was a manga artist primarily, first and foremost. He did animation. He was great at animation. He was one of those prolific guys who could just turn it out and it would be perfect all the time, or at least a version of perfect. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Basically, for me... Tezuka is primarily a manga artist. He did manga pro- so prolifically that he just deserves an award for just sheer volume load. And I know a lot of people would say Miyazaki, but the thing is, Miyazaki, he's not an anime director. He always has said, I don't do anime, I do films. And for that reason alone, the gentleman deserves to be taken out of consideration because you just can't consider his stuff just merely anime. He does just great-looking films, and I think if a lot more people in Japanese animation thought that way, it would be better all around, because they would stop trying to make great animation and make a great story instead, which is far more important to the fundamental of why would anyone want to watch this? I suppose uh, everyone, or lots of people, are going to say uh, Tezuka, of course, who and he probably is. Uh, if not, they're probably gonna, going to pick Go Nagai, which would be uh, also a fantastic choice. So I will um, attempt to pick someone who is at least almost as important into uh, the development or the evolution, in contributing to the evolution of what anime is today, and I'll try and pick someone that no one else is going to pick, and if they do pick this guy, I'm going to be very surprised. Uh, Monkey Punch the creator of Lupin the Third manga, and of course the TV series, which uh, still exists in yearly um, television films, which still get excellent ratings, according to uh, the reports I'm seeing. But uh, I think... I know Gonagai sort of uh, went this way also, but I think Monkey Punch contributed in that, uh, with his Lupin the Third anime and manga, he introduced... uh, very adult concepts to the show, uh, and risque humour, a bit of bit more violence than they were used to at the time. And um, I think this sort of at least firmly implanted the notion that anime was not just for kids, or cartoons were not just for kids. And I think a lot of uh, what got us into anime was the fact that it was not just for kids. And I think Monkey Punch certainly deserves some credit for that, so... I will choose uh, Monkey Punch. Additionally, uh, you should Miyazaki worked um, on a lot of the Lupin uh, TV series. So, and of course, you can see that change where Lupin becomes uh, sort of less of an anti-hero and more of a kind of a hero, uh, more of a noble thief. And that's what they call Miyazaki's Lupin. But uh, of course, Miyazaki went on to direct the Castle of Cagliostro. Cagliostro, sorry. And um, so I suppose we can surmise it by extension. Uh, Monkey Punch helped Miyazaki quite a bit. And where would anime be without Miyazaki these days?
It's real hard to not just knee-jerk answer Osamu Tezuka. I mean, he did sort of create the anime industry, lay the foundation for its production methods, which are still in use today, generally considered for the worse. Also, his output was just so insanely prolific between manga and anime and such. How do you not pick Osamu Tezuka as the man? I mean, he founded the studio, right? He brought out the first, some of the first shows. He trained the guys who would later be the veterans of the industry. Maybe not necessarily directly, but as a result of them working there. So I'm sure the argument could be made for guys like Yoshinobu Nishizaki, the producer of Space Battleship Yamato, who was a master of promotion and the like. Of course, Hayao Miyazaki for the body of films that he's made. Of course, hey, those aren't anime. Those are manga ega. He's too good for the word anime. I'm going to wimp out here and say what everyone else probably said. Osamu Tezuka. What can I say? He's the man. Question number 10. Is there an anime that you expected to be very horrible, but actually turned out to be quite good? So, unexpectedly good anime. Please name one. Liji Masamoto forever. Question number 10. Uh, anime that I thought would suck, but was unexpectedly good. Um, a genre of anime that I don't generally watch. Uh, is comedy. I find that most of it sucks. There's some shows that are the exceptions, like Ibichu the Hamster. I really love that show. Um, a show that I thought would suck. The first one, I have two. The first was Magical Cir Circle Guru Guru. Uh, I actually accidentally fell on this show. I was looking for a different show, but I I assumed this was the show I was looking for, but it was a different show. Uh, and this turned out to be a comedy. It's like a comedy done in RPG style. It's 45 episodes there's also a movie and there's a season two it's a great show it's so much fun i highly recommend if you haven't seen magical circle guru guru check it out it's a blast uh the second show that i had almost no hope for i thought it would suck and it i just ended up falling madly in love with the show that's dashu cape or dashing cape um there's about 30 episodes fan subbed it's a show about this little guy named Cape and he plays baseball he plays hockey and I'm not really into the whole sports thing but it's a comedy and it's from the 80s and it's just it's so good you got to check it out so yeah two shows I thought would suck that turned out to be just super good Magical Circle Guru Guru from the 90s and Dashu Cape there you have it that doesn't happen too often in fact it's it happens so rarely that it's kind of a big deal for me when it does happen um, Shoot Fighter Tekken is kind of a recent example of a show that I really thought was going to be terrible, but it ended up being a very good action show. Um, other examples are things like um, uh, Potemayo, which is, you know, this cute show that if you saw a couple of screenshots from it, you'd think it was just some sort of stupid moe show, but it was actually quite clever, I thought, and it had some excellent, excellent comedic timing, which uh, is something I can always appreciate. And uh, then there's shows like um, Battle Athletes Victory, which, you know, cover of it is, you know, girls in the Olympics in space, and it ended up being such a great show. But um, one of the biggest surprises for me was probably uh, Magical Project S. That, you know, this is, you know, just a, a spin-off of the Tenchi franchise, just, just a means of, you know, getting more money from the Tenchi idiots, and it ended up being one of the best shows that I've seen in a long time, probably ever, and the best thing to ever come out of Tenchi. I mean, there was no Tenchi show that was as good as that show was. More often than not, the 
inverse is true. Shows that look decent are discovered to be mediocre or terrible. And I am also one who deliberately searches out the creme de la crap, so my senses are tuned differently than the average person. But I will say there was one little-known OVA that came out in two parts back in 1992. I went into it expecting some generic fantasy RPG type stuff, sort of a, uh, you know, sort of a less intense version of Record of Lodos War. And I was later proved to be right in my suspicions because this show indeed was based on a Super Famicom RPG. But these OVAs were rather lighthearted and comedic affairs, a definite pleasant surprise and the animation was pretty good too my favorite line from the fan subs oh and it was also a pleasant surprise to discover that when i started watching it too was a monster saw me naked now i'll never be a bride oh the the name of this vilgust an anime i watched that i thought would be horrible but was actually good okay Mm, i'm probably gonna get flamed to death for this but i probably say maria holic which is a series from last year I remember reading the proposal for Maria Hollick, and I remember just sitting there going, oh, good God almighty, how the hell does that work? Watching the series, I thought it was going to be, you know, just this terrible, pandering, infantile series, but in actuality, it's very vicious in its humor, and it turns the central conceit that a lot of anime has is one guy and surrounded by girls who's totally perverted, and they just simply change his gender to that of a girl who's got lesbian tendencies and is surrounded by nothing but girls. Just You can just imagine the insanity ensues there. Now, I do know that Erica Friedman from uh, ALC Publishing reviewed the manga for Maria, Maria Hollick and didn't like it a lot. And I did read her review, and I do agree with her uh, with the manga that it's kind of nasty in its execution in that there isn't really anything positive going on here. But the anime has some of those elements toned down. Um, so that, for me, makes it a bit more palatable. I don't know. Yeah, that's it. That's 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 my answer. I'll choose a uh, newer anime this time because I suppose uh, looking at a lot of old school stuff, uh, nostalgia kind of uh, takes over and uh, gives you, a, you know, a, perhaps a bias. I'd have to say uh, a recent anime that I liked, well, in fact, I can say I loved... Um, was the Tower of Juaga series. Yeah, I know, it's a Gonzo show, and amongst anime podcasters, Gonzo doesn't get a lot of love. But, what can I say? I really, really enjoyed it. I I remember seeing the first episode, and not being turned off from it, turned off, so to speak, but I kind of said, uh, well, you know, this is a bit, it looks okay, but it's a bit wacky, and, um, you know, it's it's a non-stop, barrage of gags and jokes, uh, which the first episode certainly was, but um, after watching it again and deciding to watch the whole thing, I realised that, you know, it, it, it the first episode is quite different to the rest of the show, yet it somehow manages to summarise uh, it quite well. And I think it's the fact that uh, it appeals to old school gamers and it kind of knows that, and it's just as much a parody as it is kind of a somewhat serious fantasy flick. It's quite difficult to uh, elicit in specific words why I enjoyed it so much, but I think it's the fact that it was a good adaptation of the sort of console games that a lot of children grew up with. 
you've got the uh, the dungeon and the town and the the traps and um as a kid you always had obviously playing with 8-bit pixels you uh it, a lot of it was left up to your imagination and you always had an imagination of what these worlds kind of looked like and um i suppose this was kind of my anime uh, my imagination brought to life on what these sort of worlds were like these fantasy dungeons and i don't know i i just it made me feel like a kid again what can i say the second season was still good it was almost zero comedy but uh, i think the first season is definitely the better season and i just ask that people who don't normally like gonzo stuff give this show a chance it's not going to be for everyone i know that uh, and it does have the um, typically schizophrenic Gonzo uh, turn, but usually people say it Gonzo stuff starts off great, ends up crap. I can just say that it changes uh, tone, and uh, not everyone is going to like the tone it changes, but I don't think it necessarily uh, decreases in quality, so to speak. It also had most of the staff and director from uh, Brave Story, um, who the director was, I believe, uh, Koichi Chigira, who, uh, yeah, he went on to do uh, The Tower of Druaga, as I said, uh, but he also did uh, some other Gonzo stuff, Full Metal Panic, which I haven't seen, Gatekeepers, which I haven't seen, and Last Exile, which I haven't seen. But I know Full Metal Panic has its uh, share of uh, hardcore fans. So, uh, yeah, I can say The uh, Tower of Druaga. This question is basically asking for that one out of a hundred thing. See, in my mind, in my experience... I found the adage, don't judge a book by its cover, isn't true for anime. In anime, you can judge a book by its cover, and be right, pretty much 99% of the time. That other 1%, you can usually worry about that after the fact. Be proven wrong once in a while. So with that in mind, I think I was really expecting to dislike Gonkutsuo, the Count of Monte Cristo. To my surprise, it turned out to be one of the single best shows of the decade of 2000. I know a lot of people may disagree with that, but too bad. I stand strongly by the fact that it is the best series that Gonzo has ever done. It is not a relative best, like, oh, even their best is still shitty kind of thing. No, it's actually legitimately great. And I probably was not expecting actually legitimately great anything from that studio because they generally specialize in letting me down time after time after time. So yeah, that's one. Question number 11. Do you collect anime? How large is your anime collection, if so? Yes, I collect anime. I have an obsession problem. I, like, I buy all anime I can, anything that's good, especially stuff from the 80s. Um, at first, I was sort of random. I'd collect like, anything like new and old. And when your collection gets to the point where it is like where mine is, you just sort of have to just accept that you have to like kind of move into a certain direction. So I came to a conclusion that I basically stopped buying anything new. I just collect stuff from the 80s generally and 90s. That's my collection. My dream collection is just I buy everything that's from the 80s and 90s regardless of genre. I buy it all. I'm like unbiased. Hentai, mecha, stuff for girls, stuff for boys. I just buy it all. Okay. Also, when I was younger... I went insane. I bought all the Hong Kong bootleg box sets. No one to man. Probably a bad idea. I know it's not good because the people that make that are shady. But at the time, I was sort of ignorant. I didn't really realize I wasn't so hot with the internet. 
torrents. I was kind of retarded. So I bought up all these shows. Urashi Man, uh, Machine Robo, uh, Kabuto, Lupin, Fist and Lord Star. I bought all those Hong Kong bootlegs. Most of them, the subtitles were just such shit that I ended up throwing them away and replacing them with the fan subs anyways. But some of them were good. Like Tekamen, the Hong Kong bootleg for Tekamen, the subtitles are really, really good. But uh, yeah, I don't... That's sort of a dying breed. But yeah, I did do that. And of course, I buy... I'm buying up all like... I bought all the Dirty Pair box sets and Project Aiko and just all the Anime, anime Ego stuff. Anime, I can't say that. Anime Ego... I can't say it. I'm sorry. I always have a problem with that. Anime ego. I don't know how to say it. I buy all this shit. Also, I um, I take fan subs, and I make menus, and I make it look professional, and I like make designs, and I make boxes for them. There's this company in Quebec, a DVD company. They sell like six disc, uh, six discs in one or ten discs in one. And I bought a bunch of those and I made like ultimate box sets like Legend of Galactic Heroes. I have the whole show like in one box sets, like 10 discs in one. So I do that. So I know for, for a fact I have the biggest collection in Regina. I know for a fact. Like I look at all the stores. My collection is much bigger than any of the stores. There's one guy in town. He works at the comic shop. This old school guy is like almost 50. He argued that he probably has the biggest collection, but I doubt it. I really think I honestly have the biggest anime collection in the province of Saskatchewan. Over 2,000 DVDs at least. Not to mention I have like terabytes and terabytes. So I'm pretty sure my mad obsession has led to me having the biggest collection. And like I said, I'm just trying to do perfect collections, like the best quality I can get of all the 80 shows. That's basically what I focus on. I get some of the newer shows, like, of course, the new Cobra, the new Macross, the new Gundam shows. I do collect the new shows, but generally, the stuff that I make covers for or buy, I buy anything I can that's out. Obviously, I try to support the market, but my dream is to have the ultimate 80s collection. Right now, I have three bookcases full of just stuff from the 80s and 90s. A lot of obscure stuff that not a lot of people have, some of those shows. Some of it's not fan sub. Generally, I like to have it translated. So, yeah, I have a huge collection. It's just ridiculous. It's actually too big. And, uh, yeah, my goal is to get everything online that's fan sub from the 80s, regardless of genre. I I think I'm achieving my goal. I download. I'm unbiased. If it's from the 80s, I guess that makes me biased to the 80s, yeah. I just got Lupin Season 3 off back of BT. And uh, yeah, the madness never stops. If something new is out from the 80s, I'm getting it. So there you have it. And new stuff. But generally, my dream collection is stuff from the 80s because that's the anime I like. So yeah, crazy collection. I'm mumbling on. Crazy. Oh yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not one of those types that feels that, you know, I... I can watch as much as I want and don't have to put anything back into it. I've got a very large selection of anime on DVD that I've just been buying over the years, and a sizable selection on VHS still. Uh, this, the VHS selection, you know, slowly winds its way down as I can find things to be replaced onto DVD. But yeah, I do have a very, very extensive selection of anime on DVD. And as for how big it is, uh, I, I actually haven't counted it up recently. Um, as a guess, I would say I have probably 
easily over a thousand DVDs. And this is just, you know, including things like uh, box sets and, uh, you know, thin packs and things like that. And it's probably easily over a thousand, maybe over twelve hundred, uh, maybe around that, might be even less than that. But uh, it's a combination of things that I have uh, bought, things that I have won, and things that companies send us for screening purposes or for giveaway purposes as well. I don't have much of a DVD collection. I prefer to bargain hunt and be very, very particular about what I buy, in part because I'm married and have a life outside of fandom, but also because I am a hugely cheap bastard who balks at box set prices of more than $30. I own less than 40 anime DVDs, mostly Cowboy Bebop, Excel Saga, Giant Robo, some Padlibur, some Gundam, some Bubblegum Crisis, and a box set of the first... Evangelion TV release. Yeah, that crappy one in the black box with the red printing. Turns out some of the stuff I have is long out of print and therefore artificially valuable. Once again, Project Echo and Crusher Joe being amongst those. And that's not to say I won't buy more as time goes on, should something interesting pop up. I want to get uh, Outlaw Star at some point, a few other TV series. But just a couple of months ago, I hemmed and hawed over getting Gal Force and still regret not getting it. Yes, I do collect anime on DVD, a lot of it, as much as I can anyway, and for a reason uh, that I will explain further in the next answer. But yes, I do have an anime collection. It's you know fairly substantial. It's about like 150 titles or something like that. I very so often I'll shelve stuff that I've watched ad nauseum. I don't, I've never actually sold any of my anime collection for the simple reason is just some of these things go out of print uh, things like, especially the um, Anime Ego titles, a lot of what they have put out is just gone, gone, gone. I, I own a lot of titles from uh, CPM. Um, they're not published anymore for the simple fact that they're just gone now. So I don't want to get rid of any of my collection because I don't know if I'll ever be able to replace them or not. Hmm, collect is a strong word. I mean, I exist, I suppose, in kind of a uh, vacuum because I live in Hong Kong, so uh, I'm. At, Hong Kong has probably more anime on TV than uh, your average Japanese prefecture, believe it or not. Because a lot of the stuff that you uh, watch is on sort of subscriber channels that are on at, you know very late at night. Whereas in Hong Kong, you know, there's just only a few channels, but they've just got anime on all the time. But I think um, when it comes to sort of English subtitled stuff. Yeah, I'm kind of living in a vacuum. So I'm not really a part of the American anime market, or the Australian uh, anime market, so to speak. But I certainly did uh, get quite a lot of DVDs, you know, at the beginning of the DVD age. Stuff that I absolutely wanted, you know, to get on DVD. Most of it was stuff that I already owned on VHS, like uh, Macross Plus. I think that was the first DVD I ever bought. But uh, when it comes to sort of more... Newer stuff? Um, not really. The last thing I bought was Aura Battle of Dunbine, which is a very old show, uh, but I spent a lot of money on that, ordering it uh, from the US, and I got terribly burned with that because it was quite good for the first half. And then in true Tamino fashion, uh, it went to poo for the second half, and uh, the pacing was terrible. It dragged on, and uh, big deus ex machina right in the middle there that just made the whole last half of the story irrelevant. And that really kind of burnt me for a while. But one of the reasons I don't um, get more anime from overseas on DVD is I think 
we're living in a time, and I think this is some of the problems, or at least slightly contributes to the problem uh, that is with the uh, North American anime industry at the moment, is the fact that DVDs are still coming out, okay, fine, and we know that they oversaturated the market with some crappy titles, but also the fact that here in the uh, age of high definition, we're getting lots of different torrents uh, or fan subs of shows that are uh, broadcast in high definition. So, you know, I think it's difficult for people to go down, or at least it is for me to go down to DVD after watching something in 720p. Now, as someone who is a uh, nut for quality and resolution, uh, I would always choose the Blu-ray. So I've been waiting for a lot of shows to come out on Blu-ray, and now, uh, I mean, in the English-speaking world, and now they are. So we're not faced with that problem of buying something of a lower quality. That's where I think uh, anime on DVD still had an edge during the standard definition age because, you know, the DVD release would always be superior to the uh, standard definition fan sub release, though uh, not so in the high definition age. So to bring this back to something somewhat coherent, I can say in conclusion that uh, since the uh, we've come to the high definition age, I really haven't been much of a DVD collector. And yes, I do have a substantial amount of anime on DVD. How big is my collection? Let's say this. I have a two-bedroom condo, but there's only really room for one person to live here because the second bedroom is entirely devoted to storing my anime DVDs. I don't actually own any shelves because there wouldn't be enough space on the shelves to put them in. I have a series of cardboard boxes stacked atop each other, and inside each cardboard box is several DVDs worth. So I would say I probably have at least seven or 800 DVDs. I don't know if they're all anime. Well, they're not. They're definitely not. But I would say half of them are anime. So that's still 350, 400 some anime DVDs, at least. I mean, I haven't kept count. I don't even really know, you know, how much stuff I've got, actually. Question number 12. This is a special question I'm asking myself. It's sort of retarded, but I, I want to keep the order, and I'm in this series. So here we are. The final question for yours truly. I'm going to ask myself, are you proud of any contribution you made to the anime community? Okay. So full of myself to ask me this question, but I didn't know what to ask myself. Yes, I am proud. Probably the thing I'm most proud of is um, I'm not trying to be like, arrogant or like all full of myself because obviously I couldn't it's not just me but without me there would be no lock the Superman the movie out in the fan sub world I really pushed for that I put a lot of effort in that I did so much work on the fan sub for that took me about a year to get it going um, I was there at the beginning when box fan sub really started Hanako area 88 those guys have really like taken the reins but Really, Hanako and me were the ones who started it. You know, I talked to Hanako. I know he was an old school fan sub ripper. And I just said, hey, I got Cosmo Pink Shock. Let's do it. You know, I got um, Locked to Superman. Let's do it. I got Queen Millennia, the movie. Let's do this. And it started from there. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm proud to be a part of fan sub community because I don't know it's like the way the industry is going who do I rely on I rely on the fan subbers 
um, the people that care about it. I mean, the market's falling apart. The stuff I like isn't being released. I don't know. I feel powerless. This show, I always, I don't really talk about releases coming out, but I always talk about fan subgroups because that's the future. I know it sounds bleak, but so I'm proud that I was able to bring Locke to Superman. I mean, it might not be the best movie, but it was like Nietzsche, baby. If I wouldn't have pushed for that and just put so much effort in it, it never would have came to be. It was the likes of Hanako, though, who really pushed for us to get the DVD rip. And um, yeah, the fan sub of Locked to Superman. If you watch that from Back of BT, if you watch the very end of the credits, I I dedicate it to the old school fans. Um, I'm not an old school fan. I'm older. I guess like some I'd be considered old school. But really, I dedicate that movie to the guys that started it all, the guys that came before me. Because without those guys, we'd have nothing. And it's the fan community that keeps it alive. So, yeah, I'm proud. I'm not saying, oh, without me, there wouldn't be this. But I am kind of proud that I was able to put something out there. An important part of anime, Lock the Superman. It's huge in Japan. And it's just exciting for me that I was a part of that. So I am really proud that I was a big part of getting Lock the Superman out to the people. And you know, like I said, at the end of Lock the Superman, those guys at Box Fan Subs are super nice guys. And... I mean, there's guys there that put so much more work on the newer stuff than I. I don't really do anything to provide raws now, but Locke was kind of my baby. So, yeah, I'm just proud. And at the end, I dedicate it to all the old school fans. And truly, I do dedicate it to those school fans. Without those guys, I'm nothing without those dudes. So, big ups. I'm proud about Locke the Superman. Yeah, yeah. So, there you have it. Hope I don't come off as an asshole because I don't really think I'm hot shit. I'm just... You know, it's nice if you can contribute some way, you know, and that's that's my contribute to the anime world. You know, hopefully it'll continue. Old school dudes, I love you guys. You guys are the best. Question number 12. Okay, Gerald, we're on our final question. Now, my question to you is, does hentai have a significant role, an important role in anime? Do you think that hentai has some merit? Or do you feel that hentai is part of the reasons, especially in the earlier days, that people look down on anime? So, to put it in more simple terms, hentai, crap or important part of anime? Hmm, the answer to that, and uh, I have the feeling that this is what everything was leading up to, is uh, yes. Yes, that's it. Uh, I believe hentai is actually crap. 99% of it is absolute crap and throwaway and garbage. And then it is also important as well, because hentai is one of the few things out there that is animated, that is made squarely for adults. Not, not teenagers, it's made entirely for adults. And it's also something that people have a great misconception about, in that it's not something that there's this sort of dividing line between people who work in regular work and then people who work in hentai. Uh, there are directors, and there are voice actors, and there are authors, and there are writers who switch all over the place. There are, there's not really this, this demarcation of it. And um, I believe that there's some works of merit in hentai. They are few and far between. And arguably, you could say, you know, some of these works don't really count. Things like uh, A Thousand and One Nights and uh, to a lesser extent maybe Belladonna 
and uh, Cleopatra, and then there's other works like Front Innocent, and some of the Cream Lemon works, which started the careers of some very great people in anime. But yes, there is so much garbage out there, and it it it's kind of annoying that uh, they seem to be just pumping the stuff out, or at least they were. They're now they now seem to be pulling back a little bit and are now releasing fewer things, which is a good thing, but yeah, it's it's one of these th things, no one wants to talk about it, but if you're a big enough anime fan, you probably have a collection of it somewhere. But uh, yeah, I think it uh, is crap and is important as well. And I guess that's it for the questions. Thank you very much for having me. Question number 12. How did you get into anime music videos? I got into anime music videos back in 1989 when I met Matt Murray of Cornpone Flicks at a convention called Dixie Trek in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was at a room party. I was amazed at what he could accomplish with a couple of VCRs and was determined to start making my own when I got into college using the Video Workshop's giant VHS editing system. And it's funny you should ask me this because I'm considered by some, mostly myself, as one of the first to do anime music videos, an elder statesman, if you will. And even though I haven't edited an AMV in about 10 years, I maintain a membership at animemusicvideos.org to this day, dispensing justice and opinion in a form that is equal parts Al Swearingen, Gordon Ramsay, and Simon Cowell. Hang on, you're asking this just of me, aren't you? Question number 12. Now, we often hear about the big anime scenes in Italy and France, but what's the state of anime in the UK and also in Ireland? Well, I can't say for certain about the UK, but I can tell you that there is pretty much no state of bliss for anime fans in Ireland. There are a couple of conventions that we can go to, things like QCon in the north of Ireland, uh, there's Erticon in Dublin, and on the kind of viewing side, there is no channel here in Ireland that runs anime. There is no online streaming service here in Ireland that runs anime. And in England, there is a service for online streaming that's from manga usually. Um, there is no channel in uh, England that runs anime. So it's kind of, if you're an anime fan, if you, uh, I hate this this attitude from some fans in America that says, well, you know, we have to watch fan subs because there's just not enough material legally available here. And Well, here's the thing. Imagine everything you can watch currently right now for free on Crunchyroll or Anime News Network. Okay, I want you to take, say, say there's 100 titles in total. All right, take 90 of them out. That is what you would be left with if you tried to stream things legally here in Ireland or England. So... Take all of the anime DVDs that are published in the United States. Say, take something like 500 titles in a year, right? Say they're, say include um, uh, multiple volumes. Okay, take 400 of them out. That's what it's available here in England and Ireland. So the next time you complain and bitch about the lack of material that is available to American and Canadian fans... Spare a thought for us here in the other English language territories because we don't have Animax in Southeast Asia to watch anime. We don't have Crunchyroll for a lot of the stuff. 90% of what Crunchyroll runs, we just can't watch because of territorial rights. So just spare a thought for us, you know? That's about it. 
Okay, Regan, I'm going to sign off now. Take it easy, buddy. Bye-bye. We know that um, China is a newborn, China's newborn economy um, has really changed um, things in uh, China, not just lifestyle, but also media. Um, you know, there's probably more music, more money for things like big time movies. And uh, of course, the manga and in- animation industry of China. Um, of course, China has been really influenced by Japan in terms of, um, you know, um, comics. I guess they're, I don't know what they're called in China, but we'll call them manga. Um, so could you give me a little bit of a, me and the listeners a little bit of an update? Like, um, do you think that uh, the quality of Chinese animation is um, getting up there and one day will uh, stand toe-to-toe with uh, Japan? Um, Japan's uh, economy is starting to kind of falter where uh, China's uh, economy is sort of rising at a staggering rate. I mean, the bubble may burst, but um, I know that um, there's a lot of anime on and uh, a lot of Chinese kids are digging it. Um, Do you think there will be a time where the Chinese animation market will be huge and international like that of uh, Japan? And um, can you tell us of any... um, I know you're in Hong Kong, you're not in the mainland there, but uh, can you tell us of any interesting um, Chinese animation or Chinese manga that you have um, at least checked out? Chinese animation, what's up with that? We don't know. Maybe you can help us. What do you think, Dane? Well, uh, Hong Kong is mostly, Hong Kong TV is mostly dominated by anime, and um, there's no real Chinese cartoons. When I say Chinese, I mean mainland Chinese cartoons uh, on Hong Kong TV, so to speak, for several reasons. Well, one, um, the quality. The second is that uh, they'd have to dub it into Cantonese, because, you know, everyone in China speaks Mandarin. But they do that with anime, so I suppose it's not really an excuse. But the simple uh, fact of the matter is that um, most animation from the Chinese-speaking world would probably be coming out of Hong Kong, and that's usually in the form of um, co-productions with Japan. But that is not really an industry, so to speak, of... I think when it comes to uh, output of uh, that sort of stuff, I think where Hong Kong really excels is the comics. And I specifically pinpoint Hong Kong as, a, as opposed to China because I think Hong Kong has a lot more, and that's kind of the uh, comic hub of the... Uh, various Chinese territories. Uh, I I think the uh, Chinese comics, or Hong Kong comics, are just immaculately well-drawn. They're all in full colour, or most of them are in full colour, and the art is just staggering. And I think it's very separate from uh, manga. It can never be confused from manga. I think a lot of Korean stuff can be, and it shares a lot more similarities with manga, at least on a uh, visual sense. But Chinese stuff, I think, is quite distinct. And there are some uh, Chinese comics that have been translated into English, like Buddha's Palm, which is a bit of an old classic, but more newer stuff also, um, like Storm Riders. The Storm Riders uh, film is actually based on the comic, but I think most of you know that. But in terms of sort of Chinese animation, like I said, it's often co-productions, like um, oh, was it Legend of the Peacock Hero? I'm sure I've got that wrong. It's a very famous story. Uh, but most of the stuff that the mainland produces is um, yet another reiteration of uh, Journey to the West. 
and they just release the same sort of derivative stuff again and again and again and again and again and again. Uh, and it's got a lot of people in the mainland pissed off because stuff like um, Doraemon uh, sort of gets pulled off the air so that they can show these mainland-produced shows, which um, are not always of very good quality. Now, recently, when um, Kung Fu Panda came out and got a very warm reception around the world, uh, and in China, people were saying, well, this is a great film. And that started a uh, bit of soul-searching in the Chinese animation industry, where they said, well, you know, the Americans made this, it's a great film. Why didn't we make it? Or why couldn't we make it? And um, I think they're starting to uh, change. You know, they're, they're not just focusing on um, reiterations of the Chinese classics, but they're trying to make something new. And uh, one of the more recent examples is, well, I suppose we can kind of call this the Chinese industry because it was made for uh, Chinese audiences, but it was produced by Disney, or the Chinese branch of Disney. Um, but that was uh, a film, a CGI film, called The Magic Gourd, which, um, as I said, was a Chinese film uh, made for... Uh, produced by Disney, made for Chinese audience. And um, I haven't actually seen it. It's actually a co-production between China, Hong Kong, and the USA. But it's um, in Mandarin. I haven't seen it. Uh, it got a so-so reception from the general audience, but I think uh, it's indicative of a, a trend of uh, China producing sort of more original content. Now, Hong Kong can produce anything that we see in our, what we see in anime content-wise, but China is somewhat restricted uh, for its content, and I think um, certain genres are still not. Uh, widely embraced in the mainland, such as science fiction. Uh, it is in Hong Kong and Taiwan, certainly, but not so much in China. So there's other issues like that that have to be resolved before we can see anything really coming out of the Chinese uh, animation industry. So, I mean, I'm sorry I can't say more, but uh, it's just something I, I that is just not really taken off, so I'm not much of an expert in those matters. So uh, there you are. So, I should let everyone know, as this is the last question, that my throat is sore and I feel that uh, some illness or ailment is going to uh, ravage me in the next few days. So, I used the last piece of voice power, and as a teacher, voice power is the key to your job. It's very important. I have used the last piece of voice energy I have left producing this... Uh, rather epic question segment. So, I bid you adieu, and I hope you can visit uh, my podcast, animepacific.blogspot.com. Uh, it is, what can I say, it's not always on topic, but uh, some of the crap we touch upon might arouse your interest. So, uh, I eagerly await this episode, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what my fellow anime podcasters say and how similar or how different their answers are to mine or how much more eloquently spoken their answers are and finally question number 12 will there ever be another country other than japan who will take over animation you know in terms of variety of content genre on tv quantity wise etc 
With Japan's weakening economy and new countries like Korea, China, India coming up, will we see a shift over time? Will these countries and companies take the reins? Or is the climate of Japan just so different from the rest? The thing about this question is that even though it's true that so much of animation is now being outsourced to these other countries, first it was Korea, then China, India, Indonesia, and so on and so on and so forth, what's not being outsourced is creative talent. So what you end up with over time is companies and studios in countries where they are good at the technical side of anime production. They just can't write a freaking story. Korea is the most advanced of the other nations besides Japan since they were the first country to have things outsourced to. And I think if you look at the stuff that they make, it's a pretty much a good sign of what it's going to be like for the next few years. Most Korean animations that get made are pretty spectacular visually or on a technical side of things. At least they look cool but are terrible from a story perspective, from a character perspective, from a direction perspective, from a how-do-you-shoot-a-scene perspective, what angles to use, how do you convey emotion. None of these things really seem to have been picked up necessarily by the people working in most Korean animation as far as most of their original things are concerned. The best that can be said for most of their things is that they know how to kind of copy Japan to a limit. I think the same is going to eventually be true for China and the other countries. They aren't really going to have that influx of creative directorial and writing talent as well as, say, cinematography and all that stuff because that hasn't really been outsourced quite so much. So they'd have to sort of nurture it homegrown talent-wise. We'll use Korea again as an example. The government has put a lot of money into subsidizing Korean entertainment, but a lot of that money... A lot of those creators have gone into live-action film instead of animation because that's where the money is. Similarly, I mean, Japan doesn't have it so great off either. I mean, yeah, they've got all these guys who know how to do this stuff, but they don't really have replacement guys in the wings to know how to do that stuff. A lot of the up-and-coming creative talent in Japan, while they don't really go into movies because Japanese movies are pretty terrible, same thing with their TV, they go into video games. When the great anime directors and staff and talent die out or retire, there's not really a whole lot of people waiting in the wings to replace them that are of even a comparable talent. I mean, I can count maybe a couple of guys on one hand, but that's not enough to build an industry on. So I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Who's going to take over animation? Will there be another country doing something cool? Who knows? It's hard to say. Who would have been able to guess in the 80s or 90s, during the high point and subsequent downfall of Hong Kong cinema, guys who were pioneering the action genre of film, that years afterwards it would be Thailand who would be taking over the reins and being the new innovators. Kind of came out of left field, but that is how it is now. If you could have found me someone in the late 80s or even the mid-90s who could would see definitely, yes, Thailand will be the country of choice where we will look to for the innovations and advancements in action cinema today, that person would be uh, pretty darn clairvoyant, let's say. But yeah, I don't think that there's really any other country other than maybe South Korea that could take over the reins of anime just because part of the American interest in Japan isn't just their culture. It's the fact that we get so much of their stuff. I mean, right now, China is the nation that's 
influencing and affecting American culture. But we haven't really seen a whole lot of people really starting to champion Chinese popular culture. I mean, we just sort of use their products. Will that change? I think if it was going to change, it would have happened in the late 90s, back during that Hong Kong exodus, right around the time Hong Kong was going to revert back to mainland China, and it didn't happen. I think the only real way out as far as an animation takeover would be if America and Japan started to really work together in the way that that cool Japan narrative that's a lie claims is the case. What needs to happen is that needs to actually be real. The way things are, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Fortunately, there's so much great stuff over the last 50 or so years that I'm never going to watch it all anyway. If no new anime was made ever again, I'd still have too much to watch. So I'm not that concerned about it, you know? That's it for me. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. It was a fierce fight, and the winner is you, the listeners of Anime 82. I'd like to thank Gerald Rothko, Daryl Surratt, Mr. Dane from Anime Pacific, Jeff from Lather's Blather, and you, the listeners. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed the show. It was a lot of fun. It was really interesting, and I was really pleased with the answers. My guest really came through. These are the guys that I love to listen to, and it was just such an honor to have them. Guys like Dane and Philip from Beepers Choice Return, and Jeff, the man with the golden voice. Lather's Blather is such a great show. Check it out. And of course, yeah, the guys that started off for me, Anime World Order. And let's not forget my Irish brother, Philip. Eper's Choice is back. Hey, one day I'm going to come back to Ireland and kiss the ground. So yeah, to my Irish brother, Philip, big ups. Thank you very much. Join me next week for the All OVA episode. I'll leave you the way I always leave my listeners by saying, I love you, anime loves you, and the power of anime love compels you. See you next time, ladies and gentlemen. When you rise, see all the